Stealth Boom Boom, a fortnightly podcast about some great stealth slash stealthy video games and also some rubbish ones. On every episode, we go in-depth and all spoilery on one specific game and discuss whether said game stealth and its boom boom are up to snuff. My name is Colin Mahern and joining me on this episode is a man that doesn't like to be bitten. It's Adam Carroll. Good evening. And a man who, by God, loves to bite, it's Josh Wise. <laughs> Hello. The people listening to this know the runtime. I think we just need to crack on and right. party because tonight, lads, we're going to party like it's June 14, 2013. <laughs> so before we chat about the game we're talking about today, we do need to get into the right headspace, which is why we are delving into what was happening in and around the world on the 14th of June, 2013, when the game we're talking about came out. Now, the thing is, probably a shorter one than usual, because we are, I think, a week and a half after the release of Gunpoint right now. So Hmm. if you want to know a lot of what was happening around then, listen to the last episode, really. (laughs) Uh, But the biggest story around this time, no doubt was from the Series 7 finale of Britain's Got Talent, where a woman ran on stage and fired some eggs at the judges. Oh, I do remember that. Live show, she just ran on and started firing eggs at people. She was obviously carried away pretty quickly. <laughs> like, was she having the crack or was she out for... for, for, for... Out for eggy blood. I, d- <laughs> I don't know how much damage she thought she was going to do with eggs, per mm. se. Have you ever gotten smacked with an egg? I think you could probably hurt someone if you pelted an egg at them really hard. It'd probably be... Oh, it's brutal. A- it's brutal. Yeah. It's happened to me. It's terrible. I really? I don't like it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't okay. like it. Like- Hard boiled, forget about it. Like that's yeah, a blow, blow to the head. Yeah. That should be a weapon in a hitman, really. A hard Kill someone with an egg. egg. Yes. <laughs> I really don't know how to pivot here because I actually have some genuinely sad news then. Because oh. five days later, on the 19th of June, the world lost a hero, a legend. We lost the Sopranos' James Gandolfini, yes, otherwise known as Tony Soprano. So yeah, he passed away while on holiday in Italy and he was only 51. Way too young. And look, I'll just say straight off the Sopranos, look, it has nothing to do with our rating scale, but it's an espionage explosion. (laughs) Yeah, you better believe it. (laughs) That's that. (laughs) So in music, as I said, a lot of things will be talking about happening around this time. A week and a half after the release of Gunpoint, nothing changed in music. Mm. The exact same. So if you want to know what's happening with Macklemore and Robin Thicke, listen to the last episode. However, in uh, movies, there is a change at the top of the box office. So making the most money this week in American and British cinemas is the first installment in the ill-fated original incarnation of the DCEU. Yes, it's Man of Steel. Oh, yeah. It's all right. It's it's not a terrible movie. I quite like that movie. Yeah, it's a good time. Very good. Very good. Well, look, let's talk about the game now, shall we? Or at least introduce the game we're talking about today with the segment we like to call Back of the Box. 
So yes, the game we're talking about today is The Last of Us. Yeah. The video game, the 2013 video game. And I, throughout this podcast, we are probably going to mention maybe not so much the sequel mm. because I feel like, you know, we're going to talk about that at a different time, but we probably are going to compare it to the TV show and the TV show is 100% going to come up. It's fresh in our memories. Mm. It alters how you see certain things with the game. Maybe sometimes for the better, maybe sometimes for the worse. All to come. Ooh. All to come. Mm. Uh, <laughs> now, for those of you that don't know what The Last of Us is, mm. uh, I think Greg... And Sarah, there was two people left in the planet who didn't know who, what The Last of Us was. Let me explain to you. The Last of Us is a third-person action-adventure game where a father and basically surrogate daughter go on a road trip across America, occasionally stopping to have a cry and or a shout, and there are zombies there as well, and the whole situation is quite stressful. Mm. That's pretty much The Last of Us. This game, as I said, originally came out on the 14th of June 2013 on the PlayStation 3. Then, just over a year later, you had the PlayStation 4 remaster, which is in July, uh, 29th of July 2014 in North America, and then a day later in Europe. And then, of course, you had the remake, which was renamed after the sequel, Mm. which was called The Last of Us Part 1, which came to PlayStation 5 on the 2nd of September 2022 last year, and the PC version, which was the 28th of March. So yeah, only a couple of months ago Mm. when you're listening to this. So let me tell you what is on the back of the box. We haven't had one of these in a while, I feel. On On the back of the physical box, I should say. So what I'm looking at here in front of me, and I am looking at the original PS3 box that I bought. Oh, yes. When the game came out. So there is a large picture of Ellie and Joel on the right with a, and this is an interesting point, right? There's a yellowy goldy circle on top of them yeah. with text on it that says, from the creators of Uncharted. Mm. If Uncharted 5 came out, it would probably say from the creators of The Last of Us. There are also four different screenshots showing cutscenes as one with an infected and one of Joel with a shotgun in someone's face. And then the text, could you be dot 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 The Last of Us? When the world you knew is gone, when the line between right and wrong is blurred, and when life or death decisions are an everyday reality, what would you do to stay alive? (laughs) For Joel, every day is about looking after number one. But when Ellie comes into his life, their journey across what remains of the USA will push their humanity and their will to survive to the limit. You know how I think we were sort of saying with Sly Cooper, where it's like they called Sly Cooper a Thievius Raccoonus, and it's like a little bit wrong. Yeah. This isn't quite the same as that, but where it says, could you be the last of us? That doesn't feel right to me. I'm like, that's that's not really what it's... It's kind of a metaphor about hanging on to hu- your humanity and also kind of works on two levels because about people who are still alive and in a pot. It's not like a re- like Joel and Ellie are like, yeah, we're going to be the last ones. Like, it's a battle royale. The like, Hunger could Games. you be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sort of feel like, eh, it's not really... So there may be some people, again, who haven't played this so, and some people who don't know the story. Now, yes, we say it off the top, spoilers, but of course, there's going to be tons of spoilers in this thing. And I also mentioned on the last episode, I'm going to try and make these story synopses 
more like synopses rather than blow by blow accounts of what happens in the game. So I am going to leave stuff out because they just kind of got a bit too big. But I'm going to leave some stuff out just in case someone is like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't mention blank. <laughs> but uh, let's try and condense The Last of Us, which is quite, you know, heavy on story. <laughs> so, The Last of Us. In 2013, the Cordyceps virus runs through America, turning anyone that comes in contact with the carrier of the virus into effectively a mushroom zombie. In the game, they're called Infected. Uh, Our protagonist, Joel, on the night of the outbreak, loses his daughter. 100% we're going to talk about that later. Anyway, the bulk of the game takes place in 2033, where America is full of quarantine zones and loads of infected roaming about the place. Joel, who is now a smuggler with his partner, Tess, they're given a job by a woman called Marlene. Uh, Marlene is the leader of the rebel militia called the Fireflies. And the job is to transport a 14-year-old girl called Ellie to a group of fireflies who are waiting at a government building outside the quarantine zone that Joel lives. You don't know why they want her at this point. I, I, I suppose I should say Joel and Tess's motivation, it, it, they want weapons. Marilyn has said, well, I'll give you loads of guns if you do the job. And they're like, cool, love guns, brilliant. On their way to the government building, Joel and Tess discover Ellie is immune to the virus. Tess isn't immune to bullets though because she dies at the meeting point where an ambush happens. Joel and Ellie press on. They meet a survivalist called Bill who's able to give them a car. They use the car to get to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania where they befriend two brothers named Henry and Sam. Their friendship ends prematurely when Sam turns into an infected and Henry shoots Sam and then turns the gun on himself. Not having the best of time. The road trip, however, continues. Hooray. It's like that film starring Tom Green and the other guy. Bracken Mayer. Yeah, well done. Uh, So we get a reunion between Joel and his brother, Tommy, who says the Fireflies might be in Salt Lake City, Utah. So off our two adventurers go. But Joel gets severely injured and Ellie runs into a creep named David before they make it to the hospital in Salt Lake City. At the hospital, the Fireflies leader, Marlene, tells Joel that her crew think they can make a cure for the cordyceps virus from the infected portion of Ellie's brain, which would obviously kill her in the process. So Joel, he's not happy with this outcome because... You know, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about this, but the two, uh, Joel and Ellie, don't like each other at the start. And over the course of the game, they bond and, you know, as I made reference to, they're basically a father-daughter dynamic. Anyway, Joel gets very cross, kills everybody in the hospital, grabs an unconscious Ellie who was on the operating table and escapes the hospital with her. When Ellie wakes up, Joel tells her that the Fireflies had tons of immune kids and were working on their cure. But the Fireflies realised, oh, it can't be done, so they just stopped trying. The two then head back to Tommy's community in Jackson, Wyoming, where Ellie asks Joel if he's being totally honest about what happened. Joel says he is. Ellie says, quote, okay. And it becomes one of the most talked about and discussed endings ever, even when the TV show happened as well. (laughs) And I don't fully understand how some people can misread the ending, but I guess we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, Because somebody's like, well, no, of course. It's like, but is Joel the good guy? (laughs) No, of course he's not. What are you talking about? Uh, But anyway, that is the story of The Last of Us, as condensed as possible. (laughs) Now, let me tell you the story of the developer, Naughty Dog, And I will say, do please strap in because the Naughty Dog story begins about 30 years before (laughs) The Last of Us launches. However, I understand 
you don't want to just hear me prattle on, so I have enlisted the help of Adam and Josh to read out my quotes for me as I go along and tell you the story of this developer. So, our story begins in the year of 1982, where two 12-year-olds, Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, meet each other at a pre-bar mitzvah class in Northern Virginia, and they hit it off. They both discover they like video games, and both of them had even begun making their own Apple II games independently of each other. So, in an article I am going to be using a lot called Rising to Greatness, The History of Naughty Dog, posted on IGN in 2013. Gavin said, quote, For being 12, my games were very advanced code-wise, and Jason's looked great because he had the artistic inclination. He could draw really well, but his didn't run very well and mine didn't look very good. So really quickly, we were like, hey, we should get together. Oh, I love... Why didn't we do this from the start? It's perfect. Uh, Their first original game was called Math Jam. (laughs) Yes, a maths game. Uh, Excellent. And in 1984, they called their company Jam, Jason and Andy's Magic. Oh, very good. What a beautiful name. Very good. At this stage, right, I should say, they're only 14. Mm. They started selling their game to schools a year later They did eventually have to stop, though, because they needed the sign-off of some teachers and psychiatrists. (laughs) Uh, So they couldn't get that. Right, okay. They decided, this little setback, they were like, look, let's get out of the educational market and uh, let's go for more commercial product. And in 1986, at the age of 16, they made a game called Ski Crazed. Uh, It sold approximately 1,500 copies at $2 a pop. Then the two teenagers' second game was an adventure game they launched in 1987 called Dream Zone, and that sold 10,000 copies. So constantly going up and up and up. Then, and imagine this today, uh, two young fellas, right? They cold called Electronic Arts and astonishingly got a deal pretty quickly. So... Their next game, their third commercial game, was published by EA and released in 1987. It was a comedy RPG called Keith the Thief. (laughs) It sold 50,000 copies. It was also the first game that Jam, Jason and Andy's Magic, released under their new name, Naughty Dog. So their next game then took a little while longer. The two lads were in third level education now, so development was a bit tougher. And they were also developing for a home console for the first time, the Sega Mega Drive. So this game was going to be a fantasy RPG called Rings of Power. And it would be another success for Naughty Dog. This one, in three months, sold 100,000 copies. But EA decided to put their efforts elsewhere. According to Ruben, quote... EA had this other game they thought was selling better, and we had a very large cartridge memory size. So our cartridge cost more, and they thought they could sell out the other one. So they printed the other game instead. That was Madden. Probably a fair... Yeah, (laughs) I think it's probably the bankable option, to be honest. Let's be honest. After a little break, the two lads got back in the saddle and made a game for the 3DO. And they opted to start development without a publisher, putting $80,000 of their own money into it. Basically everything they had. They were inspired by Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2. Ruben and Gavin made Naughty Dog's first and only, I think, fighting game, Way of the Warrior. 
However, whilst they didn't have a publisher, they did, for the first time, bring on some contractors. So with their last $10,000, they got some booth space at the trade show CES, trying to drum up some interest for the game, basically. And it did. Universal Interactive offered them a three-game deal. One of those games would go on to become a pseudo-mascot for the PlayStation. So Universal gave them carte blanche to make what they wanted. And for the first time, they were given money to actually hire people to create a development team. A whopping eight people. Massive. Games were entering the early stages of 3D and Gavin and Ruben were keen to create a platformer. One, they said, like Donkey Kong Country. Gavin said, quote, We were like, how would Donkey Kong Country work in 3D? It was a much more difficult question then because it's a more open kind of game. We eventually had what we jokingly called... What we jokingly called the Sonic's ass idea. In other words, a platformer with a camera behind the main character that would follow him around. I mean, what else are you going to call it? (laughs) The Sonic's ass idea, really? (laughs) The platformer, if you don't know, would be called Willy the Wombat. And then they changed the name to Crash Bandicoot. (laughs) Naughty Dog signed on to develop for the newfangled PlayStation that was coming out. And Sony signed a deal with Universal to be the publisher. In 1996, the game released as a PlayStation exclusive and it did very, very well. Taylor Kurosaki, one of the designers, said, quote, We were just going to be another game on PlayStation. Uh, I think we just caught lightning in a bottle or whatever. And then they were like, oh, you're our mascot. Naughty Dog planned for a sequel to come out two years later, but Sony were like, no, 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 we want one in 12 months. And, in fairness, they did get their wish. Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Strikes Back, launched in November 1997 and was another massive success. Crash Bandicoot 3 Warped then followed in 1998 and then Crash Team Racing a year after in 1999. So you have your full Crash catalogue in like four years, <laughs> basically. I know, I know you mm. get Crash Bash, you get other things, yeah. but the Naughty yeah, the, Dog catalogue. The, the mm. big ones. Mm. So without their mascot, Naughty Dog then begin work on a new mascot, I guess, in Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy. But money was becoming a real issue while working on PlayStation 2 games. The first Jack cost $14 million. Gavin and Ruben themselves put two and a quarter million into development each. Ruben said, quote, It was very clear that it was getting out of hand, so we couldn't fund games ourselves. We were going to become more reliant on publishers. Once you become reliant on publishers, being independent becomes less cool. So Sony didn't want to dump a ton of money into a game only to lose it to a competitor again, so they offered to buy Jack. Instead, Ruben and Gavin offered the company. Ruben said, quote, Sony said, write up a document with what you think the company's worth and we'll talk about it. Unfortunately, when I wrote up that document, they accepted it without negotiation, uh, which tells me that either they're as generous as I always thought Sony is or I underbid. Based on what's happened, I underbid. But who knows? So yeah, in 2001, Naughty Dog was sold to Sony. And I'd imagine, yeah, whatever they bought it for, I'm guessing it's probably paid off by now. (laughs) Then in December of that year, Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy, launched on PS2 and was another hit. Jack 2 followed in October 2003. And on the sequel, Naughty Dog's uh, cinematics lead, Josh Schur, said, quote, There's a fair amount of debate as to the quality of the sequel. I know some people love its scope and the breadth of all different activities you can do. Other people feel that it was just way too spread out. Just lost a lot of the charm or lost a lot of the platforming stuff. I think one thing everybody can agree on, though, 
is that that game is just way too fucking hard. Only 11 months later, not even the full year, Jack 3 would come out in November 2004, which was then followed by a car combat game, Jack X, a year later. It was around this time that founders Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin decided to bow out and give the reins to co-presidents Evan Wells and Christoph Balestra, both of which had been working at Naughty Dog for a few years at the time. Ruben told IGN, quote, I was burnt out. I was looking at this and I was like, I don't see this getting better. Uh, I see more and more employees. I see them. I see me managing more and more. As Naughty Dog was ushering in a new era, new PlayStation hardware was also on the horizon. You had the PS3 and the PSP. Naughty Dog had a tough time with the transition, though. They were hemorrhaging staff and having troubles with the new tech. They even had a Jack and Daxter PSP game in the works, but it had to be cancelled. Uh, ultimately... It would be revived and be developed by High Impact Games and was released as Jack and Daxter The Lost Frontier on PSP. Then they worked on the game that would begin the next era of Naughty Dog, Uncharted Drake's Fortune, which is spearheaded by series writer and creative director Amy Hennig. Henning told IGN that there were, quote, A lot of games taking themselves very seriously at the time. We just thought that we didn't want to be in that group or even competing on that level. It didn't interest us. So we wanted something that felt like it was continuing the spirit of what we had done as a studio, as far as colour and charm and humour, but was taking advantage of the realism that we could accomplish on the hardware. Ultimately, after multiple ideas about what Uncharted would be, one involving a sort of an underwater, sounded a bit Bioshocky, uh, the studio landed on the Indiana Jones-esque adventure we know today, and the first game launched in November 2007. It was a bit of a slow burn. Um, it wasn't this sort of instant success. They then, however, got to work on the sequel, and that was a hit out the gate. Uncharted 2 Among Thieves launched in 2009, and it was just a juggernaut, winning Game of the Year awards all over the place. In 2011, then, Naughty Dog followed it up with Uncharted 3 Drake's Deception. That one fell a tad short of the love people have for the second Uncharted, but it it still sold millions of copies and was a success in anyone's language. But lead environmental artist Tate Mosian said this to IGN about Uncharted 3. Quote, It's like Jackie Brown after Pulp Fiction. It's not as good as Pulp Fiction, but people had huge expectations of Uncharted 3. I think we were just up against uh, something people didn't want to let go of. But we continue on. Naughty Dog's next game, then, would be the one that we're talking about today, The Last of Us. And in fact, the first idea for it came about in 2004. So creative director Neil Druckmann was in university at the time and came up with the concept. The gameplay of PS2 game, Eco, 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 uh, where a cop would be protecting a young girl in a post-apocalyptic zombie world. It then changed a bit in the 10 years. One thing about that original idea was that the cop had a heart condition and whenever that heart condition would flare up, players would switch and they'd start controlling the girl, effectively reversing the protector and protected roles. While working at Naughty Dog, Druckmann pitched the idea to a comic book publisher as a six-parter, but was turned down. At work, he got chatting to game director Bruce Straley about this concept and conversation turned to an episode of Planet Earth, the BBC documentary series fronted by David Attenborough. In particular, an episode about the Cordyceps virus. And I have a clip of that section of that show. You're obviously missing out on the visuals, dear listeners, but you will get the gist. So here is David Attenborough on Planet Earth 
talking about an ant that's been infected by a fungus, essentially the cordyceps virus. Spores from a parasitic fungus called cordyceps have infiltrated their bodies and their minds. Its infected brain directs this ant upwards. Then, utterly disorientated, it grips a stem with its mandibles. Those afflicted, that are discovered by the workers, are quickly taken away and dumped far away from the colony. Like something out of science fiction, the fruiting body of the cordyceps erupts from the ant's head. It can take three weeks to grow, and when finished, the deadly spores will burst from its tip. Then, any ant in the vicinity will be in serious risk of death. The fungus is so virulent, it can wipe out whole colonies of ants. And it's not just ants that fall victim to this killer. There are, literally, thousands of different types of cordyceps fungi, and remarkably, each specialises on just one species. Effectively, I suppose, John Hanna did that speech at the start of the TV show. Mm. But at first, The Last of Us was called... Not The Last of Us, but Mankind. And according to an article on The Verge called The Power of Failure, Making The Last of Us, the virus would only infect women. It was quickly nixed at the studio as Druckmann told The Verge, quote, the reason it failed is because it was a misogynistic idea. By 2010, they had decided on something that was quite close to the final game and went from there. It was announced in 2011 and launched, as mentioned, in June 2013. And believe it or not, that's a truncated version of Naughty Dog's story up (laughs) until the release of The Last of Us. Then we have our publisher, which is Sony Interactive Entertainment. And this is actually our first returning publisher because Sony Interactive Entertainment, of course, previously publisher on uh, the very first game we spoke about, which was Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus. And like I believe I said on the Sly episode, it's, it's really hard to sum up this particular company because they're different to any other company we've, we've discussed in that they're also a console manufacturer. So in a sense, it probably won't be as detailed as even a Ubisoft who have quite a clear story, but... I'll try and give you some bit of a rundown. So, as I mentioned, uh, spoken about the company's history up to 2002. So, from that point on, Sony decided to have a go at the handheld market with the PlayStation Portable, which launched in Japan December 2004, and then other territories in 2005. Also in 2005, Sony go on a bit of a shopping spree as they set up uh, Sony Worldwide Studios, which is a subsidiary that oversees production of all software from Sony-owned developers. And they pick up, over the next couple of years, they pick up Killzone developer, Guerrilla Games, SOCOM Studios, Zipper Interactive, Motorstorm developers, Big Ben Studios, Evolution Studios, and Little Big Planet developer, Media Molecule. Some of those now shut down. Some of them have gone on maybe to bigger and better things. In March 2006, Sony announced plans for their online network that would be in place for the PlayStation 3. The PlayStation Network snazzy name we can all agree (laughs) then they released the console in November 2006 we wouldn't get it uh, for a couple of months until March 2007 then in October 2009 we saw the launch of the remodeled PSP the PSP Go only two years later Sony would launch the PlayStation Vita December 2011 release date in Japan and then early 2012 in the West That is a very super quick rundown of the company between Sly Cooper and The Last of Us. And of course, I'm leaving out 
so many acquisitions, so many studio closures, so many corporate restructuring. I mean, if I'm to quickly add anything, a few of the games they published in that time. So you have three Gran Turismos, I think it was, a few SingStars, the God of War series began in this time. Uh, There were a couple of Buzz games. I mean... There were loads of things on the new PlayStation Network as well, like Journey and countless other games. You had, maybe not for us, but a very popular series in America, the baseball series, MLB The Show. You had Sucker Punch's infamous series. Uncharted, as I said, is another, obviously. Just a lot. If I left out your favourite... I apologise. <laughs> Sales-wise, The Last of Us is certainly one that I'm able to provide some bit of insight on. So in America, this one was the number one game in America for the month of June 2013. Curiously, not in the top 10 games of the year in the States, though. Mm. In the UK, it was obviously number one in the UK when it released and it, it was top of the charts for six weeks. It was this... It was able to crack the top 10 best-selling games of the year in uh, the United Kingdom. It was, in fact, the 10th best-selling game of the year. It was also number one in at least 10 other countries I could find. Uh, like, if, if I'm to give you kind of units sold, what I have at time of recording, uh, the best I have, is that as of December last year, according to Naughty Dog themselves, the series... The Last of Us, has sold 37 million copies. Hmm. So trying to figure out what the original game sold, a little bit harder, but the best I could find was from October 2019. Industry analyst Daniel Ahmed said the original Last of Us had sold 20 million units across PS3 and PS4, so not including the remake. And they're a pretty reliable voice. And it does sort of line up because in 2018, Naughty Dog said they'd shifted... 17 million units over PS3 and PS4. So I could believe an extra th- they got an extra three in that time. Mm. However, when the TV show started earlier this year, sales absolutely skyrocketed. There, there were some ridiculous figures where, oh, the last of sales are up 1,500%. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> it was ridiculous. So I, I, I don't know. As I say, a time of recording... That's kind of what I have. Uh, The critical reception of this one, the remake, The Last of Us Part 1, that is sitting on an 88, whilst the medic score of the PS3 version and The Last of Us Remastered on PlayStation 4, both 95. And that is your Last of Us back of the box. So we are going to take a quick little break And then we are going to be back to talk about all of the marketing. uh, And I really mean it when I say all of the marketing and a little bit of the press coverage in the next section. And I'll explain why when we get onto that. So yeah, back in just a sec. What if it's true? Do I need to remind you what is out there? Once upon a time... I had somebody that I cared about. And in this world, that sort of shit's good for one thing. Getting you killed. I need something smuggled out of the city. It's just cargo, Joel. I just want some simple gear, enough to set me on my way. I reckon it's got something to do with that girl. It's got everything to do with that little girl. 
can't be any worse than in here. Can it? We're shitty people, Joel. It's been that way for a long time. No, we are survivors. This is our chance. It is over, Tess! What are you so afraid of? You're treading on some mighty thin ice here. Shot count. You see, I believe everything happens for a reason. We don't have to do this. You know that, right? After all we've been through, everything that I've done, it can't be for nothing. All right, then, let's chat about some of the marketing bits and bobs in the lead up to the release of The Last of Us, as well as some of the press coverage it got. Now, the reason I said we have a lot more marketing than press coverage, like they covered all of it themselves. Like I do have some interviews that they did with the press, but there was just uh, Naughty Dog and Sony put out so much about Mm. this game. I don't know, there's not much more insight you can get really from <laughs> some of the the interviews from around that time. So yeah, some of the marketing. We start our story on the 10th of December 2011 around the, well actually I should say, we start our story on 30th of November 2011. Uh, because this is all in the lead up to the Video Game Awards in 2011 on, on the 10th of December where The Last of Us reveal trailer would uh, would be shown and people would actually, you know, find out. But in the lead up to this happening, Jeff Keighley, Mr. Video Game Awards, he tweeted saying, quote, Yes, at VGAs, we will be revealing a PS3 exclusive you won't believe. Uh, we'll be able to share more soon. I like the way he just starts that with the word yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you heard it, the rumours are true, Yes. <laughs> He followed that up with a few other tweets, most notably one tweet on the 3rd of December, which linked to a teaser site that confirmed the name of the game and a very short video that showed uh, some real life footage and a voice that was basically who would turn out to be Joel talking about, oh, the world is messed up and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, Jeff Keighley in his tweet, he said, quote, What do you see? What do you believe? The Megaton drops. 1210 live on Spike. The Megaton. The Megaton. That's so shit. It's brilliant. (laughs) And you can just imagine the hype level he's delivering this at. (laughs) Did either of you watch the reveal trailer? Like, I. I, I, Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought it was very, very effective. It was a little bit of a double whammy. It communicates a lot of what you need to know about that game, and it gets, I think, an immediate reaction. Do you guys remember those early Bioshock Infinite reveals that turned out to be quite different from what the game actually was? Yes. Was that like Rod Ferguson had to come in and like get that game over the line? Like kind of similar vibes with this. It's just like not quite right. You know, it's like not quite how Joel and Ellie interact, even when they grow quite close toward the back end of the game. They don't really interact like that. And also it... (sighs) The sort of the the way that they partner up in combat in that initial reveal. It, I mean, actually, yeah. strong Bioshock Infinite vibes, and it, there'd be a there'd be a bit of that in the finished thing, but it's got beat of energy to it, you know. On the fifth of June, twenty twelve, then we would get our first little snippet of the Last of Us gameplay at E three, twenty twelve. 
The thing that stands out to me with this is that the gameplay was like, what was it? It was about five to ten minutes and you see Joel going about and he's killing people, shotgunning lads in the face. And like the violence is insane. Like (laughs) it is properly properly insane and the crowd absolutely eats us up now I, I i put this in our notes i don't know if either of you remember but this became a talking point because that e3 it just like um a game that is in our schedule for this year splinter cell blacklist was another game that was criticized for being incredibly violent and it was at this e3 that year there was a few other ones i'm trying to remember now what they were but it was just i think people were like yes Video games are violent. Video games have always been violent, but it was just so realistic now. And it was like, oh my God, this is quite gory. But I have a clip of the crowd's reaction to a bit of the violence. Again, it's hard to, I suppose, explain this, like obviously it help with a visual aid. But this is in the middle of the gameplay reveal. Ellie chucks something at a bad guy that's going to be taking on Joel. Then Joel runs up to him, drives this lad's head into a wall and then into a chest of drawers nearby. So this is in the middle and it's like they're playing a, a county final and they're just, <laughs> just going to call or whatever. Um, so yeah, take a listen to this. I know that sound. I got you now, motherfucker. Good job with all the, uh, you know, killing and stuff. Bit cringy. I don't think that would... Oh, maybe it would happen now. I don't know. The, the, the excitement <laughs> level of us. Yeah, just sort of like... I guess it kind of... When they showed the tra- trailers for, like, the second game, I feel like p- p- there wasn't as much whooping at some of the awful shit that happened in those trailers. It still will happen for something like Doom. Oh, actually, yeah. There is a Looney Tunes-ishness yeah. to a Doom, whereas The Last of Us is, it's realistic, everything is, oh, it's heritating, blah, blah, blah. And like, another thing I have a clip here from is the Last of Us Comic-Con 2012 panel happened on the 17th of July. And I just wanted to play a clip of creative director Neil Druckmann talking about the violence in the game. And he compares it to a Coen Brothers film. So take a listen to this. I mean, it's one of the things we really wanted to push with this game is this idea that there aren't necessarily good guys and bad guys. You just have people trying to survive in this world. And it's just that Joel ends up being on the other side of he's trying to save Ellie, he's trying to save himself. And we want you to see the other people as not just fodder. We want you to see how they care for one another, how they're, they're fighting tooth and nail to survive themselves. And also we wanted to really ground the violence, just like a Coen Brothers film or something like that, where it, it, you feel the consequences of it. You feel disgusted with yourself when you take these actions, but you should feel the desperation that you have no choice but to take these actions. Now, before you comment on that, I think the next clip is, it ties to that very nicely. It was at Gamescom on the 15th of August, 2012. And this was from a little to camera piece that Naughty Dog did that had game director Bruce Straley and creative director Neil Druckmann and they were just mentioning many of the inspirations for The Last of Us. So you've heard, you know, a Coen Brothers film and you're going to hear a couple of more here uh, here as well. So take a listen to this. Something else we wanted to to do with this game was bring bring something from the genre, these other mediums, comics, 
novels and, and movies like 28 Days Later, Children of Men, Walking Dead, Walking Dead, the comic, The Road, the Boy, novel, The Last Men. Yeah, so these are things that Neil and I share a, a, a love for, really, and um, we found a great opportunity when we're kicking around the ideas for a new project at Naughty Dog. Um, to bring what we've learned in the Naughty Dog method of true character development and, and characters that resonate and have depth and conflict with each other. And you feel that tension that Joel and Ellie are feeling and you feel that pressure being applied to them and, and, and you're with them moment to moment because you're there trying to survive just like they are. People will levy insults at The Last of Us and just go, oh, it's just like The Road or it's just like The Walking Dead or it's just like 28, whatever. But I guess in fairness, here is them saying we are inspired by these things. Yeah. Now, it's a different argument about whether they do it as well as some of, the, some of those things, etc., etc. Uh, this is a nice one. So there was a lovely little video made about Gustavo Santauela. I apologize, Gustavo, if you're listening. But that is the composer of The Last of Us. And... There was a, a video post the music of The Last of Us on the 17th of May, 2013 on Sony's YouTube. And I just wanted to play a clip of this man talking about the freedom that Naughty Dog afforded him when he was composing the soundtrack. It's kind of a little bit of what you were saying when discussing Tenchu, Josh, about, mm-hmm. you know, the composer for that. It felt like they were just given carte blanche to do whatever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll just take, take a listen to, to what the man said. One of the great things about working with Neil in The Last of Us and with Jonathan too has been the freedom that I had. And I came out, I think, with some really, really interesting stuff because of that, you know, total you know, license to, to try and do stuff and, and I will try really some really out stuff and they would love that, you know. It's been for me a very, very gratifying experience. The guy who did Tenshu, when, when I say they were hands off with that guy, he seemed to just, you know, score a Miami Vice movie. Like he, like that's actually, that, that kind of freedom, you know, was maybe not a great thing for the guy. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not knocking the soundtrack of Tenchi. That was a, a fucking incredible soundtrack. I'm just saying this freedom felt like Gustavo Santaolalla kind of, he had the freedom, but he also knew the brief. On the PlayStation blog, there was a post, The Last of Us, Neil Druckmann on creating a future classic. <laughs> title of it posted on the 7th of June so just under a week before it came out and this is incredible reading Neil Druckmann was asked what he felt Naughty Dog was bringing to the type of media that was in vogue at the time with things like The Road and The Walking Dead and those things you know that that was in the clip a while ago their inspirations basically Druckmann said quote all those other things you mentioned are from passive mediums you're watching it or reading it we're fans of all those things but we felt in a game specifically an action game there was a lot of stuff we could do with mechanics and gameplay that could really get you attached to the characters to form a relationship through story uh, performance dialogue and gameplay mechanics he was also asked if he'd played bioshock infinite yes i <laughs> just like have you played that uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said that he had he hadn't. Uh, he also he just said like, oh, I have a backlog to catch up on. And then he used that, however, to go on to talk about Ellie and NPCs in games. He said, "quote In a lot of games where you have NPCs that come with you, they're annoying as you're essentially babysitting them. We didn't want that, but we didn't want the opposite either. 
them sitting in the corner with enemies ignoring them. If that happens, they don't feel like a real person. For us, it was important that enemies do engage with Ellie, and in combat, if you're being attacked, she will pick up the brick and help you. As you progress through the game and she's spending more and more time with Joel, her abilities grow. You will feel like she's changing as a person. Yeah, we'll get there. She may not sit in the corner, but I would say sometimes the enemies are ignoring her when she's legging it around the place. (laughs) But Naughty Dog also did a series of dev diaries. And I have a few clips from a couple of them because some of them are just like, meh. Just kind of whatever. But in episode three, Death and Choices, posted on the 20th of May, 2013, they spoke about a crafting system. Mm. So, yeah, you're going to hear game designer Ricky Cambier, Neil Druckmann, and lead designer Jacob Minkoff in that order. And I just want you to remember that they're talking about the crafting system of a video game in the year 2013. We wanted you to be forced to make some choices in the world that showed how depleted the resources were. And we really wanted to give you a reason to go explore this space. It's like, well, you need to look for supplies that will help you survive another day in this world. Throughout the world, the player finds all sorts of different pieces of items, such as rags, alcohol, bits of broken blades, bindings, and you can combine these together in different ways in order to create items that are useful for surviving in this world. I get to all in world and lore, lore, lore. <laughs> but like, it, it is 2013 and we're talking about crafting system. Yeah. Pull back a small bit. Yeah. There's a lot of that in the marketing. It's just, come back a small bit. Because like, <laughs> you know, it's just a touch. Because yeah, the thing is, the crafting system, just you know, like it is good. And you do have to sort of think, oh, do I want a first aid thing or a Molotov thing? But like, ch- chill out. Yeah, just, just, just chill out a bit. It, it's good. But when you talk about it like that, it, it puts me off a little bit. In another dev diary called episode four them or us posted on the 2nd of july 2013 so this is just after the game has come out actually i have a clip here of lead programmer travis mcintosh talking about the stealth in the last of us and how enemies recognize places that you're gonna hide and how they'll try to flank you and Etc. Etc. So take a listen to this. Stealth component is a big part of using the environment, like finding intelligent places to hide that give you flank groups, and the AI analyze the space that they're in, and they they know like here's a place to hide that will allow me to flank the player come around the side he's not looking. I mean, okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're making it sound like it's it's you know the, the sort of top notch like in like in like MGS2 or something where like tapping each other on the shoulder and flank and you're doing all the re- doing all the re- the real SWAT team tactics whereas when you when you're kind of in the thick of it with the last of us i get maybe it's cuz i don't i don't really notice a lot of the ais that maybe i'm just not perceptive enough but kind of feels like they're o- overegging it a little bit mm-hmm. then on the 28th of february 2014 Naughty Dog put out something called Grounded, the making of The Last of Us, produced by a company called Area 5. And 
I've broken the rules slightly here because I do try and keep it to before the game came out because otherwise at what point do you stop? The reason I've included this is because it is a documentary that was filmed during the making of the game. So I think it's kind of, you know, it's, it's still still pretty relevant. And it's essentially a feature-length version of the six dev diaries that Naughty Dog did because some even some stuff in it repeats. But there are bits in there that weren't included in, in those dev diaries as well. So I have a couple of clips from it. The first clip I wanted to play was Neil Druckmann, creative director, talking about how Naughty Dog at one point weren't going to include infected in the game as enemies. So take a listen to this. One of the things we kind of struggled with is to say, well, if we want to really ground this world and make it so like realistic, maybe we shouldn't have anything that could be perceived as a monster. Maybe like by just having an infection that just killed people and it's all about humans and how they deal with this uh, post-apocalyptic society and how different people decide to survive, maybe that would be enough. And what we realize is because we're making an action game, a lot of the storytelling happens on the joystick. And once we remove the infected, it's like all of a sudden now we can't tell the story through gameplay of what happened to the world. Uh, And that's where we kind of went back and kind of brought the infected back in because it lets you see once you're fighting them the threat that people had to deal with that otherwise would just be very cerebral and people could talk about it, but you couldn't necessarily experience it yourself. In a novel that might work, in a game for us, in a specifically an action game, it didn't work. There you go, listener. You got a lovely choking zombie. I talk you just got sick there all of a sudden. <laughs> I, I get what he's. I get what he's saying. Like you know, obviously it's clear as day. You know, bringing the infected back in, but the way the way he's kind of wording it, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes perfect sense. But then there's a part of me going, let's be honest, it's just so much more of a challenge to create this game. With just the humans. Yeah. Another clip here is the actors talking about performance capture. So basically, if you don't know, it's different to motion capture. Performance capture is where the all the actors wear their silly suits, the skin tight suits, and the every part of them is captured. Like so their face, their body, their voice, everything is all captured at once as if they are performing on a set. So in order of talking here, uh, the people you're going to hear are Troy Baker, who played Joel, Brendan Scott, who played Henry, Jeffrey Pierce, who played Tommy, Sean Eskeg, who is the animation lead, W. Earl Brown, who played Bill, Ashley Scott, who played Maria, Merle Dandridge, who played Marlene, both in the game and the TV show, and Annie Vershing, who played Tess in the game. And sadly... Uh, is no longer with us, Renee from 24. And then the clip finishes with Troy Baker. So yeah, big, uh, long list of people here and voices you're going to hear, but all actors on The Last of Us talking about performance capture. It gives you the most authentic, most realistic performance because you're actually there, not just making your own choices, but making your own choices based on the other people that are involved in that scene. So you get this truly... Um, natural approach to things and it shows up. It's like theater in the round. You can do anything from any angle and the smallest, most subtle thing will be able to pick up. There's no place to hide. So you have to be as prepared as possible because you have no idea which moments they're going to use. There are these little improv moments and you know little nuances that you get that probably isn't scripted that just comes out of play you know while they're performing that that mistake that is just 
blossomed into a really good idea. Doing this was a whole lot like being five, playing in the backyard with a stick, you know, and this is my machine gun, and you know, and a pine cone is, is my hand grenade. It's all your imagination. I'm doing the exact same shit that I did 45 years ago. I just get paid for it now. I don't do a lot of voiceover work, so for me, it was nice to be able to work off of your other actors. I, I can't imagine it working any other way. I'd never done mocap before. I didn't know what to expect. Once you get past the fact that like everybody else and your you look like weird clown people with these little dots and stuff, once you like give over to that, it really was pretty easy to make it just feel like you're in the moment and in the scene. Everyone that was on this is a slam dunk. This isn't just another gig to them. And that creates a, a really cool energy for people to really start experimenting and playing jazz. And by God, did they play jazz. And by jazz, I mean <laughs> act and say words. And um, then all that was put into put into the game. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about later on, but I, I think for the listener to, you know, you know, here's what I, all the actors were thinking at the time. And one final clip I have from Grounded, uh, this documentary, is a number of different people at the end of the documentary talking about both working very hard and crunch and saying crunch like out loud as well like that's not making the final edit of a documentary today mm. my favorite video game is making video games it is as challenging and as complex and as interesting you know, if we had to like try all the things that didn't work what's hard about crunch it's like marching through that swamp of it not working I mean, nothing's ever really final because you can always make something better always so we're constantly changing and constantly uh, reiterating and trying to make it better and better and better pretty much until we ship as an artist you're never really happy with with your work you could be given like a hundred years to work on something you'll still find things to nitpick and things to fix yeah you can work on the game for 10 years and you'll start be crunching at the end <laughs> so it's like okay <laughs> uh, one of the co-presidents there at the end mm. Talking about, <clears throat> oh, you'll be crunching. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously it wasn't until, you know, when we do, I guess, our Last of Us Part 2 episode, whenever we do that, that's when I feel like a lot of the Naughty Dog and Crunch and there was a lot of it around the release of Part 2 and a lot of articles and, and whatnot, but not a ton for the first game. I think it, it took a long time for that conversation to really gain traction. I think for a long time in the industry, it crunch was kind of held up as something to be proud of. The first sort of watershed moment was like the Rockstar Wives letter in the wake of the first Red Dead Redemption. And then, but even then, it took a few years. I mean, the 100 hour weeks comment was obviously just huge for like Red Dead 2. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like you're right. Like when Last of Us Part 2 comes out, there is a conversation about that. I think, did Jason Schreier? I believe so, yeah. It, it, it timestamps this a little bit, I think. Let's chat about some of the press coverage around this game. As I said, not an awful lot because we probably covered a, a lot of it, but to give you a, a lightning round of some news stories. You had Elliot Page doing a Reddit MMA where they were asked a question about The Last of Us and they said, quote, I guess I should be flattered that they ripped off my likeness, but I am actually acting in a video game called Beyond Two Souls. So it was not appreciated. 
there was a cartographer that saw the map they used of the Boston subway system was copy pasted into the game. Naughty Dog had to release a patch very early on to get rid of phone sex hotlines that they accidentally included in the game. <laughs> oh, you do that, I don't know. But basically on a few of the bulletin boards in the game, there were ads for pest control and the numbers on there were real. And when you rang them, you got onto a phone sex line. They had a TV ad run during the finale of The Walking Dead, which is obviously big time in 2013. There was a news story as well, just after launch, where I, I was about the game apparently being censored in PAL regions. But yeah, I, honestly, I don't have a ton of news and interviews for you, because um, as I say, a lot of it has been covered. But one little nugget and when I saw this I was like wow we could get two hours on this alone possibly. (laughs) Neil Druckmann spoke to Eurogamer on the 13th of December 2011 was when this article was posted. Druckmann told Eurogamer that the standard of storytelling in games was quote poor and that Naughty Dog wanted to quote change the fucking industry with The Last of Us. He also said critics shouldn't praise average stories. Druckmann said quote We try so hard at Naughty Dog to push things and then games come out that are fun and exciting and get visceral things right but to read in reviews that they have an amazing story is disheartening to us because we work so hard at it. As critics, we need to raise the bar. Otherwise, no one's going to change. We're going to keep pushing ourselves and kill ourselves to make this story happen. But hope that by doing that, the rest of the industry is going to take notice and try to do the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not good stuff. Do you remember what I was saying earlier? I was like, pull it back, small bit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe chill out a small bit. What really annoys me, right, is that it'd be really funny if it was shit. Do you know what I mean? If he'd said that. And then the result was stranglehold. Right? <laughs> it's actually, it's more annoying. Because the thing is, it did change a lot of things and it was a big deal. But just, just calm down a little bit. Like you could, that sort of, it was all bollocks until we came along. <laughs> yeah. One other interview I have here is from E3 2012. So June the 8th an interview with Giant Bomb and this is uh, lead game designer Jacob Minkoff talking about the different approaches that you can have when playing The Last of Us. So whether that be all-out combat or stealth. And this video was recorded after the gameplay demo that Naughty Dog put on for press behind closed doors, which was the same stretch of gameplay that was shown on stage, but whereas that one was all-out combat the person who played it behind closed doors was playing it more stealthily. So take a listen to this. First voice you're going to hear is lead game designer Jacob Minkoff and second voice you're going to hear is Giant Bomb's Brad Shoemaker. So yeah, take a listen to this. So the player can uh, completely skip all of the enemy encounters in that uh, in that demo we showed on stage. You can stealth past everybody, but in that case you're making a choice. You're saying, I'm stealthing past these guys and I'm going to be safe, but I'm not going to get any of their supplies, right? And this is uh, a brutal, bleak world where you need to constantly scavenge for supplies. You know, you saw guys opening drawers and stuff, right? If, if somebody opens a drawer and gets a supply out of it, you're not going to get that supply unless you kill them and take it off their body. 
So you have to make that choice. Do I engage with them and bring risk to myself, but potentially get more supplies, or do I stealth past them and move on? And all of those are completely open options to the player. Kind of an interesting way to turn stealth on its head, because a lot of people play, you know, a game like Deus Ex, they want to do a completely non-lethal playthrough as, like, sort of like a moral imperative, you know, just because they don't want to kill people, but, like, you guys are you're offering kind of a mechanical trade-off, you know, like you're, you're actually making sacrifices to take the moral high road. Is that kind of where that idea came from? Absolutely. Well, we, we want you to feel what it's really like to live in a brutal post-pandemic world. We, we want you to feel that in real life, you'd have to make those choices, right? If you see another human being and they have something you need to survive, you could potentially just go off and kill them, especially if you know that they would do the same to you given the chance. Does it feel a little bit to you guys, like this guy, Jacob uh, Minkoff, and maybe some of, some of the other team as well, but definitely this guy, there's just like a little bit of like Peter Molyneux here, where it's like, oh, yeah, some of what he's saying is definitely in the game but it doesn't really feel like that though and actually this thing doesn't quite work and some of that's like well you change a lot of stuff quite close to when the game ships but other stuff is like feels like these guys are really excited and they've kind of bought into their own thing loads but actually what's mechanically there it it, it, it never i mean i don't know about you guys and uh, you know we'll get into it in the next section but like it doesn't really feel like I'm making a... I'm just killing dudes and take, taking stuff. Like, I'm not like, oh, he took a thing out of a drawer. Shall I, shall I kill it? Yeah. It's like, mm, no. And also, I don't even know if that ever happens. I'm like, well, you can get stuff in there. Yeah, I don't know if but it does. But like, yeah. I'm not like, oh, shit. Oh, I feel a moral imperative, but I do need it. It's a couple of bullets. It's like, actually, I've got loads of ammo anyway, so I'm all right. <laughs> like he says there at one stage, it's not exactly quoted this way, but like, you know, you... You can take the risk of going by or you see the enemy with the supplies that you need. And it's like, no, I can't. I never, yeah. I never, you can never see the enemy and go, Jesus, he has that tape I need there now. I think it's algorithmic. I think if you're using the shotgun, for example, I think then enemies start dropping shotgun ammo. Like, I I don't think it is like, yeah, they always definitely have what they always have. Like, I think it's like what they have will change depending on what you're doing. Yeah. And one final thing here, which was recorded on the 12th of June, posted a couple of days later. So during E3 2013, two days before the game came out, this is uh, an interview uh, with IGN that Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley did. And by this point, they know that the game has been well-received critically, but the public aren't playing the game yet, apart from a public demo on the show floor. So I have a clip here of Druckmann and Straley talking about the ending of the game, something which I'm guessing we're going to talk about later on. In this clip, you're going to hear the two lads discuss how it initially wasn't testing well, and then a bit on whether they would change it based on public opinion. So the first voice you're going to hear is IGN's Greg Miller, then Neil Druckmann, and then also Bruce Straley. So take a listen to this. It's not testing well, you're 50-50 on yeah, it. Yeah, 50-50, but it, it wasn't the ending we originally envisioned for it, no. but as we were getting closer to capturing it, it just, what we originally thought of didn't feel honest anymore, where the characters were at the story and how they evolved, and it just, it became what it was, and that felt like the most honest thing to do with it. Where people on the team trying to talk about I it? I had well, a few designers telling me oh, they yeah, hate yeah. it, that yeah, they yeah. hate it. And that's kind of like how we make things yeah. better because people are free to express their opinions and their opinions matter because they're all skilled at what they do. So, okay, I got to hear you. 
But at some point, we're just like, this is kind of what we want to do, and this is the story that we need to tell about Joel and Ellie. So this is, yeah, this is what. And we then it came around eventually when the other gameplay and the music and everything comes together. You right. then they finally saw what we were trying to achieve. Are you prepared for any Mass Effect style blowback? And we hope people like it, but we're not going to change anything. I mean, this is what it is. Yeah. I don't know. In a way, we kind of welcome also the. I don't know, the, the conversation. Yeah. It's the game that we wanted to make and we felt is, I think the key word is honest. Right. It's honest to those characters. It's, and, and hopefully everything that we put into the front end of building that relationship and the feeling that you have when you're in the moment of just trying to survive puts you in the shoes of Joel and Ellie. And then so... The, yeah. At the end, the characters don't have a choice. They, they're doing just what they have to do. Once again, the ending of this game in general, no, I'm not, we won't get to know, but I'm just saying like, the way they talk about it there, and I'm sure everyone who, who anyone who's just know is like, yeah, well, I know how it ends, whatever, grand. But like, you, like, if I, before playing the game, and if you heard that, I was sat there kind of going, Jesus, what happens? Like, do they, is it all a dream? They're actually, they're in space? Like, is that what this is in? Like, you'd swear that it's the most left field turn ending ever. Like what is it? It's just it's just it's mad. That is your press coverage and your marketing of The Last of Us. <laughs> we are going to talk about our thoughts on the game as well, uh, and we're going to do that. In fact, after we take a very quick break, and then yes, we will be back to begin our review of The Last of Us. Right then. Yeah, let us chat about our thoughts on the game from 2013, The Last of Us. But before that, I want to know your knowledge of The Last of Us, lads, before you played it for this very podcast. Adam Carroll, had you ever heard of The Last of Us? I sure did. Um, look, I was a massive Uncharted fan. Here they are, back with this one. However, I would have said at the time, even with all of what we've seen and like you know, the, the week the reviews landed, it was all, oh, there it is, as we expected, the, the 11 or 10s. Um, <laughs> I was never truly totally up for its setting. That's one thing I'll say is that like, I was more like, oh, Uncharted's way cooler, <laughs> is it? Like, right, right. like, I was more like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm up for, yeah, definitely, the new game, of course, I definitely want to see it. But I was always like, I hope this world yeah. got, gets me as much as Uncharted and I hope I have as much, well, I suppose not, it wasn't definitely wasn't going to be as, as fun, but, you know, that's what it was. But look, the day, the day one, it came along, I got it, I was very excited and, you know, it just was that thing where you, you had your copy and in your head you, you were just like, this is what every single person on this planet is going to be playing right now. Here we go. We're all going to be in our rooms, not talking to each other, but just looking at a screen. So I, um, that was the time when I, I just wasn't uh, playing any video. I, went, I was in uni and I didn't bring uh, any game stuff. Games are for kids. Yeah. Games are shit. I'm a big boy now. Fuck that noise. I'm grown up now. Uh, no, I did. I, but then actually in, in uh, second year, I did bring my PSP Go back to London Jesus. when I went home for Christmas. Yeah, I bought the Go. <laughs> I still got it in my room now, actually. It's a lovely little machine, that. But anyway, there was a 360 back home because, like, I I never got the PS3. 
Um, I kind of regret it now, actually, like looking back, I'm kind of interested in PS3, but like that generation for me was like 360 all the way. And just whenever stuff happened on PlayStation, I was just like, oh yeah, that other console, I don't really give a fuck about that. And uh, well, I started caring obviously with like MGS4 and I was like, oh, you know, but when The Last of Us was happening, I do remember hearing all the noise because I had never played Uncharted at that point either. I was like super late to all of that. I caught up quite quickly when I realised it, it did actually have some cracking games on it. But yeah, I, I remember the noise. remember everyone going, it's the Uncharted guys, but it's really serious. And then I remember the Edge Magazine 10. That was like a big deal. And yeah, a lot of noise. Friends from back home going, you've got to play this. It's... Uh, it's the real shit. I got it day one as far as I can remember on PlayStation 3. I was very excited to play it. I had played the the, the two Uncharted's at this point as well. So I was like, let's go. This is going to be a whale of a time with a wisecracking <laughs> protagonist. <laughs> My PlayStation trophies, I because I, I had a look. My PlayStation trophies list uh, says that I finished the game on Saturday the 29th of June, so two weeks after it came out, at 10 to 1 at night. So 10 to 1 at night on a Saturday. So wasn't that an exciting weekend for 25-year-old me? <laughs> what a wild one. I believe all of us went for the PS4 remaster this time around. Yes. yes. There yes, isn't yes, a ton yes. of difference, like in comparison to say, like from the ground up, uh, Last of Us Part 1. Like the remaster allows you to play 108060, whereas the original PS3 was 72030. And obviously, like it's it's a touched up version of yeah. the game that was out 12 months before. But it really is like, you know, just a little bit better. Like when the PlayStation 3 version came out, like it looked phenomenal oh, in 2013. Man. It was a nicer looking version. Like some of The Last of Us Remastered's uh, biggest draws come in the little extras. The developer commentary, the photo mode, uh, left behind DLC. Obviously now as well, that's the only way to play the factions multiplayer because they shut down the PS3. Um, so yeah, that was our knowledge of The Last of Us before we played it on this podcast. So yeah, we we had heard of it. But for those of you that <laughs> haven't heard of it or didn't play along at home, let me explain the gameplay of The Last of Us. And this is honestly quite simple, really. Like The Last of Us is a third-person action-adventure game. Kind of full stop. Yeah. Combat sequences will be either shootouts or there you know will be stealthy sections but honestly describing the last of us's gameplay is one of the simpler aspects of the oh, whole yeah. game it can just be described in one sentence as the last of us is one of those modern playstation-y playstation games yeah so yeah let's get into our review then what we do is we split it up into different sections we talk about the stealth we talk about the boom boom which is basically all the other gameplay aspects uh in in the game we talk about the most noteworthy mission level or area we talk about our feelings on the story and then miscellaneous anything else that we have to hoover up at the end so Let's get into it then and let's chat about the stealth of The Last of Us. Josh Wise, why don't you start us off? So on on the plus side, quite good stealth mechanics, quite solid in terms of uh, line of sight. And I quite like the, it's a classic sort of uh, misdirection with sound, like chucking the bottle one way, fella looks that way, you go the other way. 
just really, really solid, nice, like visually readable, maybe a bit simple, but just it works. And, you know, there's a lot of games where that doesn't work so well. So like it's good in that respect, but it is also one of those games where it never really tells you like a bit like what Jacob Minkoff was saying. It's like you're stealthily killing everyone. Or there are some bits that you can get through, but it never really tells you if this is a bit that you can get through sort of stealthily. And there are kind of bits in the game where it's just like you'll, you'll sneak through a whole section and you'll find that it's a dead end. And actually you did have to kill everything. And then when you kill everything, it kind of, it, then it unlocks the, the, you know, the next bit. So it's like, little bit ill-defined for me and like i sort of found i had plenty of ammo the whole time like it the game kind of promotes combat yes so it it doesn't exactly feel like oh kind of like what they were saying with the making choices do i kill that fellow who just took some scissors from a drawer i need those scissors it's like well kind of kind of never really felt that way it always sort of feels like they're gonna give you enough ammo to do what you need to do, you know? I was actually surprised with how stealthy this felt. Hmm. I was coming into The Last of Us, sort of going, go on, we'll start in a clean slate, we'll forget all of the annoying things of the last 10 years, all of that. Let's pretend we're meeting each other again. (laughs) Hi, I'm Colm. Hi, I'm The Last of Us. Let's chat. (laughs) And the one thing was, it was like, you can choose to play... A lot of this stealthy. Obviously not enough, you know, not the entire game. Yeah. Some parts are just like all out shootouts. But you did kind of twig something in me, right? Which was you said like, oh, it's kind of undefined. What can I do? I have the exact same feeling. Mm. And it's one of my big issues with this game is they don't define the rules. Mm. Couple of issues, right? Number one, when I come into a new area, can I sneak around the baddies or do I have to kill them to progress? Mm-hmm. It is pretty clear Naughty Dog want to avoid putting anything on screen that they don't have to. Mm. Anything that takes you out of this world. They'll give you uh, your weapon and health information in the bottom right and that is it. If they could do the Dead Space, Isaac Clark. <laughs> Thing on the back, on the spine, they would, but they can't because it's not set in space. I get wanting to avoid clutter. Uh, You can praise them for a few things, uh, for kind of keeping a few things in this game Mm. quite simple and clean. But the vagueness around what you're meant to be doing in certain combat encounters, ah, it's just, it it impacts the stealth a bit. Mm. And like, basically, The Last of Us has what I define as like three types of combat encounters, right? So... One of them, easy to recognise, as I already said, it's the all-out combat one. And it's easy to recognise this because you'll walk into an area, whether that's a a room or an open area, like outside or whatever, and you'll walk in and a baddie will come running around the corner and they'll yell something like, it's the bat! But obviously not, (laughs) like, you know, it's the Joel or whatever. And they'll all be ready to absolutely destroy you. The ones that are more difficult to tell apart from each other are firstly the the encounters where you must kill everyone to progress but do it in a stealthy way if you like and secondly the encounters you can completely avoid by sneaking past enemies. Mm. And in the interest of fairness 
this didn't happen to me loads. Like I, I, I must say that like a couple of times near the beginning, perhaps I, yeah, I missed a character giving me you a useful prompt. I don't know because there are moments where a companion will say something like, you know, I don't know. Ellie will say like, oh, we don't have to fight them, Joel. We can avoid the zombies if we go straight for the building, mm. whatever. And and that's obviously very helpful. Second issue with the rules is. Can I regain my hidden status? Mm. I genuinely, I'm not sure. It felt like in certain situations I could go hidden again, but also in other places I'm like, uh, can I? Like, it feels like if I'm seen and I kill the guy who's seen me, then yeah, certain areas I can hide from enemies again. Other situations, it feels like once I'm seen, I am visible to all of the enemies, every enemy in that area, regardless of whether or not the baddie was able to say, call out for help in time. Every enemy that's in this encounter is able to see me now. And kind of in addition to that, some of the enemies have incredible hearing, don't they? Yeah. Like, it, it, they can hear stuff from 150 feet away, <laughs> sometimes through multiple walls, maybe even floors of a building. They'll hear the smash of a bottle. They'll come running to your general area. It's as if your status is tied to all of the enemies. So like you are either unseen or seen by all of the enemies in this area. And I don't know, like I I should say, right, I'm cool with, for example, a far cry Mm. where you can tackle an outpost half stealthily and, you know, you've killed five of the ten lads stealthy and you've been all basically solid snake mm. in the jungle. And then, uh-oh, somebody's seen you. Then you have to break out your uh, machine gun and absolutely destroy the other five, mm. right? I'm cool with that because even to continue that comparison, the Far Cry games have very clear rules for stealth. The Last of Us has clear rules in that, like, line of sight, but the encounters themselves feel very like... Yeah, I think it's funny. In Far Cry, you've got like... You can definitely regain stealth and stuff, but you also have that Ubisoft like hive mind thing. I do. I think with The Last of Us, a lot of... If, if someone spots you, I think all of the people in your, in your vicinity, they are alerted, but they may not have like full situational awareness of where you are, which would be an important difference between this and Far Cry for me. One of the tr- one of the things is for me, you know how you you sort of said like a couple of times in the in 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 the game, like you would uh, hit a dead end after sneaking through a load of people and then discover, in fact, oh no, I have to I have, I have to kill them all, right? If that happens like twice or or even like once, I just think psychologically it's a really important thing for a stealth game to to sort of to set that out initially because if you don't then i'm always just playing it in a in a certain way you know like on um you know like in metal gear or something they they make it fully clear like you know stealth is your first thing like combat is your absolute last resort or in like splinter cell and he's like oh you've got fifth freedom now you're allowed to kill people but you know that's a switch that flicks one way and early on in the in the game you don't have that you definitely need to sneak through i think if you don't define that for the player i kind of just i'm drawn away from the stealth. i I end up playing through it a little bit like batman where it's like i will employ stealth to kill everyone because it's going to be really annoying if i get somewhere and find a dead end door killing in stealth is most 
stealth games, I guess, like Agent 47, he must kill somebody, but quietly. Like, <laughs> that's fine. But it's it's the, at times, not knowing if that is the mission. Like, you don't have a Diana yeah. who says, oh, this is what we should do. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, Adam, how much you loved the AI in yeah. Gunpoint and how quick off the draw your enemies were. Um, what did you think of the AI in this one? I think, personally, some... I think the majority, actually, of... <laughs> The, the human AI in this is is pretty stupid. Whenever I got into a certain area and it'd be like, all right, we drop down. And I always forgot as well, like, I don't know why this bothers me as well. But you know that? It, it's in Uncharted as well. I never truly gelled with the whole, like, I'm crouched against the box, but I didn't press a button. <laughs> I'm just like, do not, dog doesn't have that des- designated. Press L1 to glue yourself here to the wall. So mm-hmm. it's like, and I will do it for you. And I never truly felt like I was always like in control. I don't know what it was. I felt like I was just going to jump on and go, all right, I was going and pop out in front of the lads by mistake. But um, <laughs> when you when you get down there and like you got to usually the lads talk and then they kind of they kind of spread out and you go grand. Like there's so many moments. Now I played this game on normal mode. I know it could be, it, 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 that's just the way every game I feel is. This is the, this is the way it's designed to be played. This 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 difficulty, but like there's certain times like where I'm like, all right, I'm 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 now walking towards this guy, and he is there staring at nothing. He is just looking directly at a wall with nothing on the wall, and I'm coming up from behind, and I'm like. 20 seconds and I, I'm all of a sudden now realising that I'm really out in the open. Like I'm really out in the open. So I'm kind of a bit paranoid that someone behind me is going to see me. But they never do, really. They're <laughs> always like kind of busy looking at walls <laughs> and just not really paying attention. And you get up and you do your thing. And what you were saying, Colm, about like they have incredible hearing. Yeah, they do. But then there are times where I'm like, this fella has been roaring as I've just annihilated <laughs> him and no one has come along. But all of a sudden, if I throw a brick, you're all over me. Mm. But this fella is going, oh! <laughs> you're just and like... And you know what? Like, these things stand out in this game because everything about it is realism, 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 everything. This yeah. is real. We want you to feel like you're in this world. Real, 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 real. So then, if a fella is just looking at a blank wall... Mm. Or other things that we'll probably mention throughout. Like, these things stand out. 100%. And like, that then to me, it kills the tension. It kills the overall risk. Like, when they talk about how, like, you know, you can go on and try and get your supplies and stuff. I never... F- and this is go- this is not just going from this this recent, uh, like, playthrough. This is this has always been the way since day one with the game for me. I, I've been always like... Never truly like, yeah, stealth is there. Yeah, yeah, you can get caught. But if I got caught, I always felt I was grand. Do you know, we'll have a shootout, bit of crack. When it comes down to stealth, if you're caught, you need to always feel like, oh, shit. It does just feel like I'm, I'm pushed towards. They, they want you to see the story. They never want the player to feel like, oh, this this one section of an area of enemies is, is going to cause problems now for people for a while. They're going to have to really, like, you never, ever have to think about your decision mm. on your supplies or anything. Because you're always like, 
Errol, I'll, I'll have enough there. I'll definitely get through this fine. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not like, I've only six bullets now and how many lads are around there? It's like, <laughs> like, it's, it's never a thought because even if you're caught, you can just run and do melee stuff and all that jazz, whatever. But like, it just, it's weird. It's, it's just how it gets set up in certain areas and it's like, well, I suppose I better kill that fella there, no one. There we go. Sure, look, that's that done anyway. And you know, it just—it's not atrocious by any stretch. I'm gonna have to pick you up on one thing you said, though, Adam. I really like the whole snapping to cover. I don't know. There's a sort of a freeness to movement that I I quite enjoy. I know you did too, Josh. Yeah, I did. Yeah, no, I did. I did. I yeah, I really, I really liked it. I there are times when that thing that naughty dog can kind of annoy people with that you know when like in naughty dog it's like ah, i don't really feel like i'm in control sometimes this thing feels like a roller coaster that you've you've blocked the gutter lanes like i can't really fail here there are also times where that stuff's like brilliant you know that it's never fumbly when you're crouching and you're near anything there's a really really organic little thing that's just like you see Joel or Ellie dip ever so slightly lower and put the palm of their hand against the thing. Mm. And if that's happening, oh, what a brilliant little bit of uh, like visual feedback that is. like when that's happening, you're in cover and it's just so like supple and liquid and it just always works. It definitely works 100%, but it's just that thing like, and that, as I said, it was always an Uncharted for me as well. When it's so loose, it just never, I, I think I haven't played a Nautilus game in quite some time that when I played this again, I was like, oh Jesus, this York again. Like I was like, oh, okay, right, it's weird. Oh yeah, no, for sure. And like, I do agree with you, like, I, as much as I really like the organic snap two thing, like it's not it's not yeah. serious business. Like y- if yes. you're a proper, it's not gears. No, no, exactly. Yeah, or if in proper stealth, like Metal Gear Solid or something, it's like you can't really be fucking about with context sensitivity. Like you have to give me the button because I need to be in control of every aspect of this. What are your thoughts on the magic ears that Joel has? Yeah, it's quite. Isn't it funny how that's sort of never really explained? as well yeah i don't think listening mode is is explained yeah and also like in the show at least they make a thing of him being like deaf in one ear and it's like wait is he just like matt murloc like daredevil where it's just like yeah Yeah, i hear the thing and it gives me echolocation x-ray eyes it's like all right all right is that he's sharpened his (laughs) ears do you know what what? Uh, in a game again that's like oh everything has to be so real like I'm like yes. cool yeah I've I've no problem mm. Ian Hitman can also do it he can go like basically listen really carefully and he's able to see things with his Hitman instincts god you're right yeah that, that that's not even his hearing is it he just sees his target highlighted in red through like 10 walls <laughs> I like, you know, sometimes it's fine. You're a game. But uh, Adam, down here, you have just, there's so much more tension if you turn it off. What, do you just mean like if if you just don't use it? You can go in and just turn it off in the options and it's not okay, there. I didn't even know mm. that. Yeah. So it's just there to be turned off, right? So I was like, oh, okay. Because I remember when like, it just, it, I was playing, I was oh yeah, the listening mode thing. Grind back then, I suppose. But now I'm just like, it's a bit, it's a bit stupid in, 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 in a game that you're, putting out to say that you're going to change the fucking video game industry I'm just a bit like okay this is this is not really that hardcore mm. I think I went into the options and I was like right just turn it off and see how we get on 
And boy, oh boy, like, especially with any of the clicker situations, <laughs> it is terrifying. Because there's, there's no two ways about it. Like, as soon as you're like, any infected is around, are around you, and they're like minding their own business, and they're like, in the corner or whatever. It's like, my son's infected. But like, um, when they're in the corner doing their own business, like, you always repress it. You'll always press it and you're, you're, you're always like, you're crouched and you're, you're just watching them and you're slowly going by and off you go. When you turn the listening mode off and you can't visually see like exactly what direction they're facing and stuff, adds a whole other dynamic to the game. I, I understand, look, when, as they rolled on with like part two and stuff, you know, the accessibility options, all that stuff. Fantastic. But this is something that I wish just from the get-go never existed. Mm. One, it's just, it is stupid. It's not explained. Two, it makes it just feel super video gamey, which is fine. But we're trying to, we're, we're apparently playing a game that's going to change the industry. And then, as I said, it's just, it's just more terrifying. So I just wish it just stayed that way. So I actually played, I think like maybe two hours of the game um, with it on. And then I turned it off for the rest of the game. Wow. I get what you mean, but the thing is, it is a video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let Joel be able to hear through walls. That's fine. (laughs) I think that having the magic ears is important for the clickers, which I want to say, one of the best video game enemies of the last decade. I Mm -hmm. love the clickers and every encounter with a clicker is absolutely exhilarating. And that's kind of, I guess, why I'm talking about like, the game felt a lot stealthier to me maybe than either of you because almost every clicker encounter I was like sneaking around, shiving one lad, shiving another. It was all that for the the people at home. The clickers are the penultimate phase in a human being's infected journey. The Last of Us introduces another step in the sequel but just in this game the clickers are like the second highest kind of infectedness you can get Uh, just behind the top phase which is the bloater which is just this big hulking thing that will fire fungi grenades at you and honestly they're okay because if one of them is on the scene it just means all hell is breaking loose and you can just pull out a few molotovs and start lobbing them and it's just fine so like what is technically the most dangerous enemy in The Last of Us isn't the one that stands out to me that honour does go to the clicker for example, right, two weeks ago, I spoke about how Gunpoint is insta-fail stealth, but it's also successful with that because of how it sets its rules. If a clicker spots you, it isn't insta-fail stealth, right? But if it catches up to you, and I am talking about the early stages of the game, if it catches up to you, bang, you're dead. One hit, done. Uh, you obviously get upgrades later on and you do turn into a bit of an action man conversation for uh, another minute, right? Talking about the clickers mm. now. This could become frustrating. The clickers one hit killing you if the player didn't have such an advantage over the clicker. The clicker can't see anything. The mushroom has grown over their eyes. They're blind. They, they click because they're using echolocation to navigate, determine what's around them. So like... You have the jump on a room of clickers from the get-go because you can see what's in front of you. But these lads have super-powered ears and you need to be very, very quiet around them. You need to be crouched down and just, yeah, skulking around the place, trying to avoid the clickers because I guess we said the stealth is line of sight. With the clickers, it's not. It is 
line of yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so like when you come into a room of clickers, I was like, oh, yes, like this is when the game comes alive because I just have to go from A to B. Sometimes that involves killing the clickers, like, to, to you know, go back and go back a little bit to the point of like, can I just pass him? Can I do I have to kill him? Blah, blah, blah. Like another thing you have advantage you have on the clickers is that you can also one hit kill them. If you're successful in sneaking around them, shiv them mm, fucking in the neck. Done. Have that, mm-hmm. lad. But like their power is still terrifying because like in that dark area, you're hearing clicking, bouncing off the walls and you go into the listen mode and you see six, seven clickers between you and the exit. Mm. Like, you know that if you mess up and you make a sound, all these lads are going to be on you and you are gone. Right. Mm. So you need those advantages because of the sheer power the clicker has over you because they're introduced quite early on. So those encounters are really tense for that reason because if you mess up, you're you're basically dead. Mm. The caveat is for the first third, push it to the first half mm. of the game. But still, love, love, love the clicker. I completely agree. Like I think when you, any any moment, whether you do have the listening mode on or off any moment where it's a room of clickers it's terrifying the tension is there it's it constantly feels you never want to approach them you just want to get out of the room get by all that jazz terrifying I did want to briefly mention the closest thing to a boss fight that this game has I think I mean I guess there are some sections that are more challenging than the others where Naughty Dog will chuck a bloater at you. Oh, and yeah. I don't know, like may- maybe their boss fights as well. But maybe the school when that, you... that comes to mind. the The closest thing I think to a boss fight in this is the day, the end of the David section. Mm. So, in short, Ellie ends up being held captive by this creepy cannibal named David. She breaks out, and then the two of them end up in a restaurant. That's on fire. You're playing as Ellie in this section. Ellie doesn't have guns in this bit, though. So basically what you're doing is Ellie is crawling around booths, trying to avoid broken glass on the floor, while David is also walking around the booths searching for you. You're just trying to sneak around him, sneak up to him, stab him with your little knife. Uh, The arena kind of reminded me a little bit of the Fat Man fight in MGS2, but you weren't spraying bombs, sadly. That would have been nice. So, yeah, like, it is ridiculously simple, right? And it's over, like, one thing actually that surprised me, I was like, God, I remember this lasting way longer. It is over lightning fast. Mm. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I quite like the idea. uh, The idea of... Where you're so weak, there's this guy, if he sees you, you're, you're donezo again. Kind of, I guess, a little bit like the clickers. But you have to avoid glass that's on the floor because if you go over that, he'll find out where you are. And it's simple. It's not, it's not terribly complicated, but it feels quite different in this game. Yeah. Over very quickly, over weird. Yeah, no, yeah, sure. And, but it, but it, I, I think it also works with what this game is. It is really different in some ways from, from the rest of the game. It sort of stands apart as a clear boss fight, but it did sort of fit 
And mechanically, it did sort of feel like something that belonged. Yeah. I think Naughty Dog has basically kind of always uh, struggled with with boss fights. I mean, it's, there's a we, um, there's a moment in the second uh, Last of Us game where it has like a really weird traditional video game boss fight, which is like something from Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. And I remember that jarring and being like, "Whoa, this kind of isn't what the Last of Us does." It's funny when you fight David; it's actually spiritually closer to something in Crash Bandicoot. It's like a rule of three thing you have to yeah. do it you know you, <laughs> it's like a real classical video game boss fight in a in a in a weird way so that is what we thought of the stealth of the last of us so we're going to take a quick little break and then we will be back to talk about the boom boom and the mission level or area that stood out to each of us so yeah we'll be back in just a sec <laughs> Alright then, we've spoken about the stealth of The Last of Us, so let's talk about the other gameplay aspects in a section we like to call How is the, the Boom Boom? Um, Josh Wise, why don't you start us off? The first point of the Boom Boom is the Boom Boom. Shooting people. Uh, it's good stuff. In this game, they really, really nail, kind of in a, in a nasty way, the feeling of shooting someone. The feeling of shooting someone in The Last of Us feels really horrible and very satisfying in a kind of in a way that sort of scares me. <laughs> like very, very good headshots. Headshots are important. Very good little bit of like HUD feedback when you get a headshot, the little lines that fan out and they fan out they're red when they're a headshot and they're white when it's like a shot that doesn't kill them but hurts them when you kill someone there's a real weight to it a real kind of like oh shit that's that's nasty and what it's quite rare i find like you don't really get that in call of duty it's totally weightless one of the other games that i wrote down was red dead redemption 2 um, which I feel like did also did a good job. Like if you kill someone in that game, especially in a in a particular like a gruesome way, you really kind of feel that. Like some of the animations are so fucked, you're just sort of like, oh god. Like I shot that guy in the leg, and he's like limping now. Oh god, he's begging for his life. I sort of have to shoot him in the head, though. I know they were bloody well banging on about them in those dev diaries, but they. I do think that they do a really, really good uh, job of that. Like, not all the time. You know, sometimes you do just slip into video game mode, I mean, granted, um, and you just think, right, I'm mowing some dudes down. But even when you're doing that, each person that you go through, there is a slight crunch to it, a slight sort of, oh, Christ, there goes another one. Oh, God, that was horrible. You know, the, uh, and, and, and that, I think that's to be commended. It's not like, you know... I'm not going to ask anyone to take my confession after every session I play on. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like I'm not, I'm not haunted by these things, but you know, just that, that slight element of, Oh Christ, that was horrible. And I, and I did that. That's rare in games. You know, I thought, I think we should, uh, you know, perhaps give that its credit. I agree with you that there's a great heft to it, but not once did I ever think, Oh dear, poor PJ. PJ. You deserve to live. <laughs> like, they, they are, they are merely enemies. It's not a guilt thing, I should say. It's not like I feel bad for them as human beings. It's more 
in the immediate moment of impact, there's a kind of, oh God, the sound effect for that was fright frighteningly. <laughs> Sounds just like a brick would sound, possibly if it smacked someone in the head. I don't know, but very Yeah, there's, there's a great heft to, to what you're doing. Now, I think it's probably too much heft or you can apply too much heft in general to proceedings because... I've written down here from around the halfway point. I don't know, maybe I'm being generous, but I was never once. And this is something you brought up, Josh, but I was kind of going to bring it up with a sort of a combat scenario. Like I was never in danger of running out of ammo or supplies. And that is a problem. I played a large chunk of this game with an armory in my pockets. <laughs> the first half of the game, it balances shootouts and stealth. I think very well. All the test section where you're, you know, there's the searchlights and you, you can avoid them. You don't have to kill them. The bill bit, which I'll talk about in the next bit. Then it feels like it turns somewhere between the suburbs with Henry and Sam and the dam mm. with Tommy. And like knowing those names or places is irrelevant. All you need to know is that there was a shift for me somewhere around the middle. And that shift came when I realised I had an outrageous amount of firepower. Because I realised... I was never going to run out of ammo for my weapons or resources for crafting, and I never, ever did. In fact, I often didn't have enough room for the bullets and crafting materials that I would find in those secret rooms where you'd use a shiv to open the door and you'd go in and it'd be like, oh, mm. that was kind of a bit of a waste, was it? But it doesn't matter because I have loads of materials to make more shivs. Those tense battles I mentioned about with the clickers, loved them. They were great. But they don't have the same tension as it goes along because I have now three petrol bombs, three shrapnel grenades, three shivs, uh, and enough material to craft three more of each of those. All of the time. All of the time. And like, I had picked up at this point the most powerful revolver ever called El Diablo. Even when you see the name of it, you're like, that's a bit funny, isn't it? I don't know. It's... My beef isn't even necessarily with the combat. I Like I mentioned, I liked the flowiness of, of Joel. The gunplay isn't 10 out of 10 or anything like that. It's, again, it's perfectly fine. And, you know, I like the melee combat. And I know that's something you wanted to talk about, Adam. Is there, there is a lot of meat in that. My qualms are, are merely with how the game plays in that first half versus how it plays in that second half. Mm. A more starved for ammo and materials, Joel, makes a much better game in my eyes. And honestly, it fits the narrative better too. Like, I mean... <laughs> like when I picked this up, I I just laughed and I was like, I totally forgot this was in the game. What is this doing in here? But for the last hour and a half, is it? It's at the university. Yeah. Like, you have a fucking flamethrower. That you have is a flamethrower. <laughs> I did sort of forget when I saw you'd written that in the notes, I actually did just sort of crack up laughing because I it's not something that I properly ever thought about. A bit like the listening mode. It's like, actually, that's sort of mental. Like, why is there a flamethrower in this game? That I'm not saying they couldn't exist or whatever in this world. And I know it's like a sort of makeshift flamethrower. But it's just, it's so video gamey, but also just in terms of the tone. Like, 
imagine if there was a flamethrower in the road. Yeah, yeah. The flamethrower versus the listening mode, I think, are different. Like, the listening mode is magical, and it's like, yeah, of course, why can he do this? But the flame, I don't know, the flamethrower breaks the world even more for me. That's ridiculous, it is. It, it, it is funny. But weirdly, your stuff with the ammo, that never really bothered me. I think perhaps because I like to play it like a big old murder machine. <laughs> So, mate, and that's yeah, fair, like, yeah. yeah, fair play. But yeah, melee combat, though. Oof. I like myself the melee combat. There's something super satisfying about, like, I don't know, you just have that plank of wood or a pipe, and there's a fella, and you just go, yeah, fuck yeah. it. And you just run towards them in sheer rage, and it does that superb, like, camera shaky action where all of a sudden mm. it feels action packed, and it's the last time you're ever going to do this thing I don't know what it is and you the when we're talking about the weight of shooting the weight of of the melee stuff is whew, you feel every single mm. thump that you're giving them when you have a piper you're like oh Jesus and I always loved how Naughty Dog incorporate the, the environment where you're kind of you don't you don't set it up yourself but it could be just a pure chance so all of a sudden there's something there and they just pick it up and slap it off their head or something <laughs> you're like poor that just adds to it to me. Playing it again, I was seriously like, it, has, it hasn't dated at all. Like, I think mm. it still feels incredibly feel satisfying. All right. I know I slated them talking about the crafting system earlier, right? But I do quite like the crafting system. Yeah. <laughs> it's so simple. But I, I do want to praise how simple it is and how the... The resources you collect all fall into a couple of neat little different categories. Again, a very video gamey thing, and like it works. Oh, for sure. Yeah. By the end of the game, you can only craft up to five items, and there are six yeah. different materials with which to craft mm. those items. Mm. And that's it. And like the the pace with which they introduce new items is also very good. If anything, they could have perhaps played with, because uh, basically, there are two items. The materials you use for both items are the same, and one is an offensive item, and one is a defensive item. So one is a petrol bomb, and one is the the med kit. And what you need to make those same thing. They could have maybe played with that a little bit more. Offensive item versus defensive item. How do, do you know? It's a great little bit of tension, isn't it? That it's so clever. Uh, uh, yeah, for at least for the early parts of the game, I thought that was wonderful. That that is what we thought of the boom boom. So now let's chat about the mission or level or area that stood out to each of us. So doesn't have to be our favourite, although I think we've all chosen our favourites. Adam, why don't you start us off? I'm going to have to say the opening. Um, I think from start, start up to the point of the title of the game coming up, I think is an absolute masterpiece. To have a game with such hype and you start off with not one of those characters that you've seen the whole time, was just like, what the hell is going on here? Every time, like, yeah, you can, I think I've played this game now, maybe about four times in total. And all four times, when it starts and you're walking around as Sarah, uh, well, you get the whole Sarah and Joel first interaction with the, with the watch and his birthday mm. and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And then it goes, boom, here you are. She wakes up. There's, there's obviously a bit of commotion happening. She's wondering where Joel is. And you walk around the house at nighttime. And I think immediately 
from the moment you start controlling Sarah, there's this complete level of dread. You you don't know what's going to jump out at you. And the setup even down to like coming out into the hallway and you see like the light of Joel's room from the doors being open and you can hear a TV and you walk into the room and he's calling him and you watch, you can just watch the TV and you can see the kind of events unfolding, I suppose. Then you continue on downstairs to go down to the kitchen. You're calling Joel. Then you hear an explosion. It, it basically goes on to the car scene of them escaping. Tommy comes out, Joel, the infected are there. Everyone's panicking in the streets. And um, when it gets to the point of of Sarah dying, is one of the most like, holy mm. shit, like experiences I think I've ever, ever gone through in a video game. It, it, it just absolutely doesn't hold back. We're not sick. Got a couple of civilians on the outer perimeter. Please advise. Eddie, what about Uncle Tommy? We're going to get you to safety and go back for him, okay? Sir, there's a little girl. But... Yes, sir. Somebody we've just been through hell. Okay, we just need... Oh, shit. Please don't. Oh, no. Sarah. Move your hands, baby. I know, baby, I know. Listen to me, I know this hurts me. You're gonna be okay, baby, stay with me. I'm gonna pick you up. I know, baby, I know it hurts. Come on, baby, please. I know, baby, I know. I think it's an incredible setup. And it's just it's just completely terrifying. I think when just the last just pops on the screen, how did you guys feel? What you say is actually a really good point. I never considered that before, but it might be like the only time at least in in this game maybe the second game has some more stuff but it's the only it's the closest thing to like horror which is sounds like a bonkers thing to say because it's like clickers knocking about and stuff mm. but i i'm not really scared like the the intro to the last of us when you are completely vulnerable of course in, in pragmatic gameplay terms you're not because it's you know large parts of it are like a sort of interactive cutscene, but you feel vulnerable it is sort of the closest thing to it, to it actually being scary. The thing that always gets me, and I, and no matter how many times I replay the game, I always uh, half forget, it's the impact of Sarah's death. But I always forget that it's 20 years later. Like, that smash cut and time. I, I, yeah. I, it's like, I know that it is, but every time it comes up, I'm like, oh God, yeah, actually, yeah, it's just 20 years. And the cut to Joel then waking up in the room and he's like had the nightmare and stuff. It, it's a phenomenal way to begin a video game. It's an excellent introduction to Sarah alone, who's somebody we just only know for like 20 minutes. And you just, you feel every ounce of mm. what she's going through in that whole opening section. Yeah. And they do, they do also, I think one of the reasons it, it's like s- simple stuff, like screenwriting stuff, but it is just very effective and it's not in a lot of games, but they, they every, every sort of significant thing that, that will, that well, not every significant thing, but a lot of what then follows in the video game is like touched off very, very deftly and quickly here. So immediately you've got uh, all of them in the car driving through and like Joel's decision not to stop and help the people on the road is like, 
immediately like, oh yeah, that's probably what will happen to humanity. Like that's the first casualty of this situation is that people stop being kind. And then it's just like, oh, and the military guy is told to shoot at them. Okay. That's what's going to happen to government then. That's Fedra basically. You know, it's when you smash cut in that 20 years, it's like, oh, they seed lots of the significant things very effectively in that, uh, in that opening. And of course, perspective, which, which is something that, that Naughty Dog uh, just do fantastically. The decision of who to make you play as is always quite significant. And there's often a, a passing of the torch. You know, the, the first person you play as in The Last of Us is Sarah. That torch is passed to Joel. That torch is passed to Ellie, you know, and mm. then so on to Abby. Like they use perspective very, very well um, in a w- weird way that like lots of games... They will have you playing as different characters, but 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 thematically, it's not always as important as Naughty Dog does it. It's done well. I mean, you don't have an awful lot to do with it. Is one thing I would say. Like when the when you go downstairs, the cops will always go past the window there when you step on that exact step, and you know, like you you are. I mean, you've used the phrase a couple of times, Josh, like a roller coaster. Mm. Like that's what it At is. At that time, maybe Naughty Dog wasn't as when this game came out, there was the bit in Uncharted 2 where you walk through the village and kick the football. And like, that wasn't as much of a trope as it is now with Naughty Dog. This was maybe only like the sort of second or third time that they'd kind of used that. The weight of it has waned slightly in the decade that has passed, I would say. The, the strength of it. Still very good. And... Very good at kind of the things Josh said, like it, it, establishing all those things. Army man, bad. He is now sad dad. The watch, the blah, blah, blah. Like it establishes all these things very quickly and it's very effective in doing that. It's an interesting thing. If basically, you've no fucking soul, but like, so be it. <laughs> Josh Wise, what's, what's the, the part of The Last of Us that sticks out to you? So I picked uh, Chapter 5, Pittsburgh, uh, the sequence in the Hotel Grand uh, on the street outside. It's a set piece uh, outside the Hotel Grand. And it's a set piece that you can you can tackle stealthily or you can go the action route. Um, and the setup of the scene... It's an important moment, I guess, in terms of trust in the relationship of Joel and Ellie. It's the point at which he, uh, I think the first significant point where he puts his life in her hands. Right now, I'm going to jump down there and I'm going to clear us a path. What about me? You stay here. This is so stupid. We'd have more of a fucking chance if you let me help. I am. You seem to know your way around a gun. You reckon you can handle that? Well, I sort of shot a rifle before, but it was at rats. Rats? With BBs. Well, it's the same basic concept. Lift it up. All right, now, you're going to lean right into that stock because it is going to kick a hell of a lot more than any BB rifle. Okay. Go and pull the bolt back. Grab it right there. Just tug it. Here you go. As soon as you fire... You're going to want to get another round in there quick. Listen to me. If I get into trouble down there, you make every shot count. Yeah. I got this. All right. 
So it's just kind of a big moment in the story. The set piece is excellent. I do think the shooting, uh, if we just, let's just say you want to do this set piece in an action way. The shooting is really good. Like it's significantly better than all three Uncharted games up to that point. And I think you would only get better from here. I think the the shooting in Uncharted 4 and The Last of Us Part 2 is terrific third person shooting with good organic use of cover um it's a really really beautifully orchestrated scene it starts out with uh joel's behind some scaffolding and there are three guys they're having an idle conversation fourth guy comes running over out of breath panicked they're asking what's going on from that point they are perfectly in range of a molotov cocktail that will take out four people in a glorious and horrible inferno at which point more people will be triggered in the adjacent two buildings one on the right one on the left there are sight lines on the right, which will take you around a car uh, and into the ground floor of the building on the right, which point there are people above you. And there are also people on the adjacent building on the elevated windows, which is incredible because the, the, the sense of cover, you get this panicked feel in that environment where they never allow you to feel fully comfortable on your peripheral, on your flanks. You, you either have to check the adjacent building or work out where the people are above you. So, and that's if you've, so you can do it the action way, you can do it the stealth way, but you do have to kill everyone. And Ellie being out of the situation, I think like mechanically it's interesting. It's also interesting sort of psychologically. You kind of feel a bit more like I'm Joel and Joel's an absolute nutter when he wants to be. And I'm going to go mental here and just be a bit of an action man. Or you can do it really, really sneakily. It's what they do really well, and they do fuse mechanics and level design. They they do have all of their things working in tandem very well, and I think uh, we should probably recognise that because there aren't many developers that can do stuff in this way. Like, it is an unbelievably well-designed level in terms of the height of everything and just the layout of it. But it's also like a significant story moment. It combines something that is mechanical. You have cover, but it's also like a sort of little passing the the, the trust on and sort of progressing their relationship. It's just such a fun set piece. You can, the, the different ways you can approach it. It's like a, yeah, a little meaty slice, I think, of all the things that the game does. The area that I chose is for very similar reasons and that is the previous chapter chapter four bill's town so this is specifically after you meet bill and up until they reach the school ah yes so at this point in the game joel and ellie they're making their way towards this prepper that joel knows called bill bill owes him a favor if they go to bill's they're going to get a car they're going to use the car to go to pittsburgh brilliant stuff now plot wise like what you said is about your bit, Josh. Yeah, totally agree. Plot wise, this is an odd one, right? Because the characterization of Bill in the TV show, much, 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 much better. The narrative here is really weak where his partner hangs himself and there's so much hatred and it's just not, it's not great. And there's a real cowardice to how Naughty Dog treat Bill's sexuality. It feels like Naughty Dog wanted to have a gay character, but also there's a bit of Republicans by Sneakers too to this, like where they didn't want to upset any potential customers. So they just went with him going like, oh yeah, he's my partner. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, 
I had somebody that I cared about. A partner. Somebody I had to look after. And in this world, that sort of shit's good for one thing. Getting you killed. So you know what I did? I wisened the fuck up. And I realized it's gotta be just me. Bill, it ain't, it ain't like that. It's bullshit. It is just like that. And, um, oh, what's the name of that trope? Is it Kill Your Gaze? The old Hollywood trope? But basically where back in day in Hollywood movies, if you had a gay character, the character must die. And that's what this feels like. But anyway, if you've seen the TV show, you've seen the best version of this story by a thousand percent. And that's quite the aside, but I just wanted to try and get that tr- through that quickly. This area of the game is the best. It, it sort of shows me what areas of this game, what more areas of this game could have been like, I should say. So basically, it's broad daylight in this small little town. Uh, there's a residential area nearby and the whole place is overrun by infected. It's just they're absolutely everywhere. So firstly, it is the first time I think you're seeing these monsters that previously only came out at night. You're seeing them during the day. So there's, you know, this sort of fun, like, oh, this is this is quite different. But the main reason I want to highlight this area is it's one of the more open areas of the game where your choices and how you approach a situation actually matter. And mainly it's that stretch between a grave, um, a graveyard and the school. And it it predominantly takes place in the residential area I mentioned. So if you want, you can stay on this one side of the fence and take an easier route towards school. But you're missing out on a ton of goodness on the other side of the fence, because on the other side of that fence, there are a few houses, each with rooms that contain crafting materials, pills that you can use to upgrade do you know what? We, we didn't even speak about That's an odd thing, isn't it? Chugs a load of pills and read books. Reads books as well. Don't forget that. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I quite like that. You just, I read it in a book. What? Oh, I can fix a gun now. It's <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, you can find a load of goodies in these, in these houses. But the thing is, this area is overrun by infected and clickers and it is a proper risk reward situation because if you take the harder route you'll get all the goodies but you're also more at risk of using your resources or dying because of the all the zombies that are there and I know I said you do become a bit of an action hero later on this section is still in that sweet spot it's still in that first half where you're not overflowing with um, materials or ammo or whatever and if you go the more difficult route you don't have to kill everyone you can just, if you're sneaky enough, you can get in and out of there without causing too much fuss. Uh, I'm pretty sure you also get the crossbow around this time, um, or the, the the bow and arrow. So you can fling a few of those at baddies here. That's a sound strategy because it keeps you quiet. Mm. And because it's the middle of the day and totally bright out there, there are enough bad guys within close proximity that it is still, you know, a bit tense. Like the first time you meet the clickers in the very dark underground train station. I just love this section. It's a great section. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Those were the areas of the game that stood out to us. So we are going to take a quick break and then we will be back to talk about the story of The Last of Us. Did it really change video games forever? Well, 
You will find out after this little musical interlude. Right, let us chat about the narrative of The Last of Us, the story of Joel and Ellie. Josh Wise, why don't you start us off? What what part of the story do you want to tackle? What do you want to talk about? First off, pacing. Very good. It's got some of the best pacing, I think, of a of a single player story. The way that they, they kind of use the the time cut thing. It's another thing that was touched off really nicely in the uh in the intro. They sort of cut through time sometimes quite large blocks of time and it's sort of seamless and you always get the sense that a lot is happening to characters in those cuts that we aren't given access to and I really love that. So like it cuts 20 years after Sarah's death or uh, when Henry and Sam die, it then cuts and immediately changes season to fall and that is just really effective. A lot happens in those cuts but it, it it doesn't feel like stuff's missing. It feels like we aren't given access to the characters in that time. But also just from one thing to the next, there is just this effortless pace to it. You're never in doubt as to like where you're going and, 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 and why you're doing what you're doing. Even if it's like super basic stuff, like, you know, we, we, we need a car battery. Mm-hmm. And for me, like the, I think the biggest debt is to Resident Evil 4. For the for the Last of Us in like quite a lot of ways, but this but this way in particular, the sense of like in Resident Evil Four, a man go- going through an an afternoon, then through a night, and into the into the morning, like it's all one sort of seamless thing. It felt in a, in a similar similar way to the to the Last of Us does that sense that you're never questioning, even though some actually bonkers shit is going on, you're never really. It feels like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten minutes ago I was there and it kind of makes sense that I'm here now. Time is flowing as it should. Nothing Mm -hmm. is disjointed. Yeah, I I agree. I I don't need to know everything. It's fine. Show me the important bits. Adam, you want to talk about, rather than, I guess, maybe the game moving on or, uh, you know, there's a month missing here or there. You want to talk about maybe the kind of slow burn of the story. Is that right? Yeah, it definitely was how I felt the first time playing it. My connection with the characters wasn't like tearing along like quickly. And I suppose that's kind of, it's not really a con or anything to the game, but it's just like when when I'm coming off the back of loving something like Uncharted 3 and that's, I know a completely different tone and pacing and all that jazz, but I, I wasn't connecting with it. First time round. Second time round, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, it's, it's, it, this is working, okay. It just, for me, it, it does hit more as it went, went on. When you say as it went on, do you mean as the story went on or the more times you played the game? More, more times I played it, it, it is just slower. It is just a lot, lot slower in comparison mm. to their previous games. And I don't think, I, I think I was prepared for... I don't know why, but like it would make no sense if it was bombastic. <laughs> and like I was... Jumping out of planes and stuff like that, you know. But, like, I think I was just so unprepared for its pacing. And then I, I don't think, like, the story ever really, like, um, delivers, like, major things until, like, the start and kind of maybe the end. Yeah. But in between that, it's, it, it's all just about John Lilly and 
their relationship building, which is very different, I guess. Yeah, just first time round, I was just like, oh, this is what this is, okay. I mean, I guess talking about Joel and Ellie, the, the character building was something you wanted to talk about, Josh. But even not so much Joel and Ellie, I, I guess the other characters yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, just sort of just everyone, really. It's it's um simple stuff, but I, know, I think Druckmann's like mantra was uh he always says uh simple stories complex characters and i think that holds true um the plot is fairly whatever gotta get from a to b gotta cure the world but it gives you quite a few characters and then in a very short space of time they are vivid in front of you in a way that i do think is kind of there's an awful lot of games where that's just not the case. Um, and I think it should, <laughs> I think it's, it's got to do with like visual design. It's got to do with the actors doing it, the writing, which is like simple, but evocative. And one of the things that I always point out, I can't remember who said this. I think it might've been Tom Bissell. Um, he was talking about Gears of War and Gears of War does this really well as well. Uh, his whole thing was like, how many games can you name all of the main and like secondary characters and like um it sounds really stupid it sounds proper basic and you probably go oh i can name loads of characters and loads of games but like in gears of war for example it's like oh baird and cole are going that way and marcus and dom are going that way i know what the conversations will be like when baird has them with cole and they will be very different from the conversations that dom and marcus will have <laughs> You know, it's like, and I can name all of those guys and tell you what they are like. And The Last of Us achieves that really, really well. It's like got a fairly big cast and they are all sort of fleshed out pretty damn quick with some really sparing stuff. And sometimes in those jump cuts, we don't get anything, but we just imagine the impact that they have over the course of this really simple plot. But yeah, just sort of effortlessly just like bill henry sam tess joel ellie sarah tommy maria like they're just they are all very very deftly done um and that sort of just still is quite quite rare now i think i i agree with the most of what you said I, like i i think the plot is is pretty pedestrian but the characterization for a lot of the characters, I don't know if I'd say all mm. of them, but a lot of them, and and importantly, the two main oh, ones, yeah. Yeah. is very good. And the performances, I think, are very good. Mm. Like, I, I really do believe their connection. Oh, gotcha. With the television show, so fresh in our heads, it is difficult not to compare the storytelling in the game to the storytelling in the TV show. Like, for example, I think the TV show is able to accomplish certain things more successfully because it can be clearer about the path from A to B. You know, like most television shows don't get to episode five or six and go, oh shit, we're really rattling through our narrative. Best to give the viewer an hour and a half of zero plot. Mm. Like it, it doesn't do that, you know, whereas a game does, and I think even The Last of Us a little bit goes, like say the section between Bill and Sam and Henry, you know, there isn't much plot there. It's game. Fighting through Pittsburgh. It's like yeah, this yeah, is a video yeah, game. Yeah. No matter the TV show, even if the story isn't that grandiose or deep or whatnot, one of any television program's main aims is to tell a coherent and if possible, good story. Whereas video games, not mm. so much. Because every video game's main aim is to play a particular way. Whatever the aims of the developer are, the game should play like that when all is said and done. 
I get, you know, I'm being reductive. Like many developers, Naughty Dog included, I'm guessing probably put story maybe even equal to gameplay now, I'd say. Oh, yeah, probably. I say all that to basically praise one thing that the game does very well and it can do it because it is a video game and not a TV show so concerned with plot. And that's those optional conversations that Joel and Ellie have throughout the game. Both the ones you trigger and the just inane chat that fills silences when you move from place to place. And probably more so those ones really than the ones you trigger. Those are the ones that stick out Mm. to me. Because in those bits you hear Ellie... Uh, like you, you hear her be amazed at a woods because she's never been mm. to a, a woods before, or she's in a record store and she's sad because no one gets to hear these uh, the the music, or mm. you know she she has no filter and she's so open with Joel and and inquisitive, like when they see a chessboard at Bills and she asks, she's like, oh, have you ever played before? Or when they're at the university and she asks Joel something about. Or why did people come here when they were adults to to go to more school? It's it's in these far from plot pivotal moments that the relationship of Joel and Ellie goes to something more personal. Joel goes from smuggler to well, basically parent, mm. you know, and Ellie is goes from smuggler's cargo, I suppose, to daughter. If you look for it, you can see things in like Ellie's body language. She gets more comfortable with Joel. She begins to get a little less guarded. Mm. But these two, they, they have nothing better than just to talk to one another, you know, and to get to know one another. And even though I've mentioned times where Ellie is talking, just asking Joel 20 questions, Joel himself then does as it goes along. He begins to initiate conversation and, and you know, ask Ellie mm. questions. And there's one example I wanted to highlight in a clip. It's just before you begin the bill section of the game, Ellie and Joel are just walking about scavenging when Ellie tries to whistle and she can't whistle. And then once you're through that bill section, more or less the beginning of the next chapter of the game, Ellie once again tries to whistle and she can do it. (laughs) So here are those two moments stitched together. And I will say, you will hear a bit of noise. That's just me as Joel going around collecting my half (laughs) pair of scissors um, and all that. But yeah, here is Ellie trying to whistle and failing and then successfully whistling. Are you all right? I'm trying to learn how to whistle. You don't know how to whistle. It doesn't sound like I know how to whistle. <gasps> I'm whistling! Oh, good. Something else you can drive me crazy. That's awesome. It's, it's a great example of how, kind of like what you were saying, Josh, how the game shows time passing. And, you know, this teenage girl, you can put two and two together. Like this teenage girl has been bored out of her tree. So she spent time trying to learn how to whistle and she's done it. And like, even in that clip, you can hear the softening of both. How Ellie is becoming more sincere Mm. with Joel, how Joel is becoming more comfortable to Ellie. It does those quieter moments very, very well. That's one of the strengths that it has, I think, uh, you know, over the TV show is that is those those kinds of little moments. One of the uh, things that I kind of wanted to touch on was like the, some of the more passive stuff. I know it's very like video gamey tropey 
to sort of like find notes in the environment and read the notes and learn about the world and all that. Mm. But there are some really, really cool things in The Last of Us, like those little incidental um, conversations, which are only really possible with games. They are achievable in other mediums, but they are achievable in different ways. So like one of the things I wanted to touch on was uh, Ish, who uh, is the... A whole little story unfolds with Ish, and it's really lovely. So Ish is a guy, after Bill, when you're knocking about with Henry and Sam, and you jump off the bridge, and you end up in the sewers, and you wash up on a beach just before you go into the sewers, and you find that there is a there is a beached uh, ship, a small sailboat, and uh, on the you find a little note from a fella who was out at sea when the, all the cordyceps happens, and he said, right, you know, I've been out here for six months or whatever. And he, he comes up and he says, it's time for me to come onto, onto land. And he does. And as you guys have to all go through the sewers, doing your stuff, shooting the clickers, doing this, doing that, you sort of incidentally in the background, just follow this little miniature narrative of Ish. <laughs> and you find this whole, you know, he's, he's, he goes into the sewers and he befriends, he happens upon another little sort of gaggle of survivors. Uh, they have children with them and they're hiding in the sewers. And it's kind of hinted at that Ish ha- has a little connection, possibly a romantic connection with a woman down there as well. They come up with these little rules for everyone to live by and they actually live in the sewers for quite a while. And a really sad thing happens and the fate of Ish is left open. And I still think about Ish sometimes to this day and wonder if he's okay. <laughs> and that's a fucking incredible thing. I mean, you know, there are, you know, Hamlet has a play within a play, or if you want to get more pop culture about it, like Zack Schneider's Watchmen has the tales of the Black Freighter. It's a comic book inside a comic book. And one of the characters is reading a comic book and that comic book is a meta commentary on this comic book. But there is a little sincerity to it that video games can do which is just storytelling that has to do with you just looking at the world, but also directing the characters where to look. And it is quite rare that those are as compelling as this little mini narrative was for me. I had another point kind of related to this being a game, I guess, because again, TV show is so fresh in our heads. Now this, I guess you could disregard even with it being a TV show, but... The story and the gameplay does feel at odds with each other for me, especially from that kind of halfway point. You're this walking weapon that the narrative is at odds with. And I'm avoiding desperately trying to say Ludo narrative dissonance because I don't I don't think that beautiful 2010s phrase fits anyway it doesn't quite because what you're talking about is like proficiency rather than morality like joel the character would do these things right (laughs) but he maybe wouldn't be james bond when he's doing them (laughs) i I suppose very quickly for because there might be some youngins that miss the whole thing and you know you're probably better off but ludonarrative dissonance is this thing that yeah was mentioned for every video game in the 2010s 
it became very popular around Grand Theft Auto 4 is one people brought up. I guess Nathan Drake being a mass murderer in, in Uncharted as well. But basically, it's when the player is doing things during gameplay that doesn't marry up with what the characters are saying or doing during cutscenes. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm not putting that little beauty on The Last of Us because the story of this game and this world is survival. You're meant to look out for number one. If someone's tr- threatening your life, you put a bullet in them before they can do it for you. It's... It's every post-apocalyptic thing we've mentioned on this podcast so far and Bruce Straley mentioned and Neil Druckmann mentioned, everyone mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Now, the thing about the majority of, you know, the world as we know it is over and people are the real monsters and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the, the majority of known media that does that, I would say they are films and they are TV shows like everything that um, the two lads Straley and Druckmann were mentioning were you know Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later or uh, The Road or The Walking Dead like it's all none of them are games Mm. and I'm circling back to what I was saying earlier like The Last of Us the 2013 video game it can do some things better than a movie but there are things that it can't avoid like gameplay it's a video game. Of course I can't. It's a, it's a stealthy action adventure video game where in a lot of cases you must shoot baddies in the face to proceed to the next part. Yeah. I'm not here to repeat my thoughts yeah. on that part of the game. I'm here now <laughs> to say how it doesn't fully work with the story that Naughty Dog are trying to tell. So look, there's something in the game. There's a counter that allows you to check your stats. So I said, oh, I'll be quite interesting. I'll have a look at that. So after the credits rolled, I booted up the game again. You can start a new game plus, but it carries over all your stats. So do you know how many people, I I shouldn't say people, do you know how many humans and infected, how many beings I killed? What is it? Is it like hundreds or? 483. <laughs> That's funny. You know how many kills John Rambo has? Go on. 552. Brilliant. My Joel... And let me just say that when I didn't have to kill, I didn't kill. I snuck about the place and I still hit 483. Mm. Again, creatures, I don't know the split. So it's not exactly like for like with John Rambo. Yes, it's it's a violent world. Joel is a violent man. You do what you do to, to survive and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, we've, we've spoken about this. It pushes you into scenarios where murder is the answer. And that, I don't know, it, it doesn't totally jive with the narrative for me fully because like Joel can and will kill, but Christ, should he kill that many? I definitely agree. It, it does. It is one of those things where it's like, it's not ludo narrative dissonance. It's just the degree to which something is happening. Yes. It's just a bit like, oh, okay, that's, I mean, the, you know, the guy's going to get on a minigun and just mow down like 400 odd people. I, I totally agree. I actually think just on this particular point, it was interesting that there was one, there was one comparison to the show. I actually thought the video game did better and it was the hospital. Oh, I thought the show did better. That's interesting because it was the first time Joel had been on a rampage. Whereas in the game, you had been on a rampage for... 13, 14 hours. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I just meant in terms of like when you're in the game, you kill a load of people in the hospital and because it's in gameplay, it's a kind of an understandable uh, thing that you have to do and you're you're proficient at killing because you've killed lots of people in all these, in all these set pieces. Whereas in the show, I thought it was kind of a cop out because 
well, number one, they drown it in this like bullshit music. Yeah, like the music is bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then also like in the in the show, there's just not enough to. They show that Joel's cold as fuck. Like when he executes those uh, guys in Pittsburgh, and the guys like begging for his life. Like they show that he's capable of some serious shit. But what didn't quite work in the show for me uh, was just like. Uh, I don't really understand why or how he's Jason Bourne. Like you, you spent an episode just sort of going, yeah, he's like, he's past it. And actually he wanted Tommy to go with her because Tommy's young and physically more fit and he's deaf in one ear. You can't really do a set piece where it's just John Wick. And it's actually like 17 armed, trained army. Like, why is he this proficient it it felt video in the video game it didn't leap out as much because it's a video game and i'm like yeah i'm gonna go through with an m16 and kill a load of dudes whereas in the show it was like I mean, this actually sort of feels a bit nutty like he sort of str- struggled with like two bandits a couple episodes ago and he's just like john wick now like is it is it is it the power of love that's just fueling him through the- <laughs> yeah. i don't know what, yeah. there's a very kind of weird understanding of what the story as a whole is really about because like in, in, like we can go into it now or whatever like but like the whole indecision like the way people talk about it, the way people go was oh, he right should he have done this should he have done like that like anyone who's like but is Joel a good guy no of course he isn't the ending is he's selfish and that's the point. Yeah. If you don't like it and you want a happy ending, that's a different... I'm not saying either of you. I'm talking to this imaginary no, person. No, 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 Like, no, no, no. if yeah. you want a happy ending, that's a different argument. <laughs> yeah. Like, like it, I, I actually have... I have the audio from the famous final conversation. So this is after Joel has taken Ellie out of the hospital and they're standing there and Ellie is... Uh, she actually, in this clip, she starts talking about... Uh, Riley, who was her girlfriend from the Left Behind DLC and how she was bitten and she turned and she gets on to asking Joel if what he said to her about the fireflies going, oh, there is no cure and she can stay alive and whatever. She's she's leading up to asking Joel if that was true. So yeah, take a listen to this. I'm still waiting for my turn. Ellie. Her name was Riley and she was the first to die. And then it was Tess... And then Sam. None of that is on you. You don't understand. I struggled for a long time with surviving. And you... No matter what... You keep finding something to fight for. Now, I know that's not what you want to hear right now. Swear to me. Swear to me that everything that you've said about the Fireflies is true. I swear. Okay. I think the ending is so strong. I completely agree. It's it's actually, it's foreshadowed really well just before they get to the hospital. Um, I think it's optional dialogue, actually, which is mad, but um, fair play to them. Where they're walking on the bridge in Salt Lake City and Ellie describes to Joel the dream that she's had. And she she describes being on an airplane and she goes up to the cockpit, like to the cabin, and she opens the door and finds that there's no pilot there. 
I always thought that was a really nice foreshadowing of the of the ending of the game because it's like you know Joel's not the not the pilot anymore no one's driving she she sort of has to find her own morality now I always kind of looked at that ending and was and was just sort of like that's great because this relationship has been maybe not irreparably fucked but massively compromised to my mind it must be one of the first if not the first times where like with the graphics of a PlayStation 3 which is nuts when performance capture was good enough to give a scene meaning without words and the only other thing I can think of is like LA Noir, which in comparison feels so gimmicky it's just do they scrunch their face up when they're lying it's like <laughs> it's actually ridiculous but what's communicated in Ellie's face is is like one of the notable times that video games did something without saying something you know we're, we're in the miscellaneous section are there any final things you haven't said about The Last of Us Josh Wise well, the last thing I, I kind of wrote down was that it was like as well as a really good sort of post Resident Evil 4 game. It is also, and I didn't know uh, that you, because you sort of read out earlier in your notes column that ICO was actually consciously a thing that they looked at. I just came to that on, on my own for the record, everyone. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I just, your applause. <laughs> Yeah, give me, give me some. Come on, that's organic. That uh, they, they, it is really, really good. Um, I mean, Ico is a tremendous game. It's not a stealth game, so I'm not going to start talking about Ico loads. But you know, the way that a relationship develops um, over the course of Ico, purely in mechanics, there isn't a word of dialogue in that game. Now, that really would be a game to hold up. There ain't no Ludo narrative dissonance, and it tells a very, very good story. But stuff like you, when you call for Yorda. Uh, as the game progresses, she starts to trust Ico more and uh, she doesn't hesitate towards the beginning of the game. She hesitates and sometimes walks over very slowly. Later on, she runs straight to him. Uh, the vibration in the controller as you're holding hands kind of eases up as well. It it builds their sort of connection purely through mechanics. And The Last of Us touches on that. Of course, it adds dialogue and it adds cutscenes and it adds a lot of acting and stuff. But the way that it it uses its mechanics to sort of um, reinforce their relationship. Top-notch stuff. Adam Carroll, tell me why the music of The Last of Us is very good. I'm going to say straight out, it's probably the, my most listened to video game soundtrack of all time. I I think what he has done throughout this entire game is is incredible. I think it's just, it's so, it's such an easy soundtrack to listen to. There's a lot of video game soundtracks out there that are incredible, but you know, there's, there's not a whole pile that I can personally just put on in the background and just be like, wow, oh, that's, that's just really, given, given the, the actual like theme of the entire game, there is a couple of like, woof, nervy moments, but his, the, the, the guitar playing and everything, it's so moving. It's so relaxed. It, it brings, so much to the to the to the emotion of the story and um, yeah he's he's phenomenal i actually think it's better than like part two soundtrack and i think even like the tv show one i just love it i really really the theme song to the last was is spectacular really is Yeah. 
Yeah, it is good. And just some of the messed up weird tracks that even in that little documentary you see him mm. and he's baiting on his drums and he's he's playing his PVC <laughs> pipes. Yeah, there's that very funny clip uh, where he's showing Neil like a certain piece of music for a certain part of the game for the first time and it just shows him in the studio and you can just tell that Gustav was just like I, f- I, I fucking have this mm. don't you worry <laughs> and like Neil is just like oh just like so, as he's probably going to be he anyway. goes to smack him doesn't he he like gives him a <laughs> whack yeah, yeah, no. he's like he's about to cry but you just know that he's going to and yeah tr- it truly delivers throughout the whole game there were a couple of things I wanted to mention this game right 10 years old to keep everything above board again I played the remastered version just to remind people because you've been listening for a while now I played the remastered version which is 9 years old either way the detail in this game is mind blowing absolutely incredible when you walk into a room in a house you immediately get a sense of the people who live there from the pictures on the wall, the layout of the kitchen, the things they have on display in glass cabinets, like 2013, 2023, whatever, doesn't matter. The detail Mm. in this game, the visuals, incredible. Like, Mm. yes, the game captures the beauty in that post-apocalyptic style Oh, nature is healing. It's reclaiming the urbanized areas. Animals are roaming free. There's giraffes. Ah. <laughs> but like, I'm just talking about the painstaking detail here. Like at one point you go into an Irish pub, they have like a clock, uh, clock in, clock out system in the storeroom or there are cigarette machines in the corner of the pub and pool tables and mm. that real, you know, pubby wood paneling on the walls and, you know, I think it was, it's in that section, not long after that, you're in, I think it's the Sam and Henry bit, where you're in this creche or a kind of a, a school or something. And you see the, mm. you know, do you know those foamy, soft letter tiles on the floor? And like there's toys scattered about and the alphabet is written on the whiteboard. I, I could give dozens of other examples like this. Like The Last of Us, it's full of it. The Naughty Dog are incredible at placing you in an environment. Like we've already spoken about what appeared to be a, a culture of crunch at Naughty Dog. There's no way you can look at this game and think people did it in their nine to five. Mother of God. Like we obviously have the benefit of hearing uh, what people were doing and like the backlash Druckmann and Naughty Dog received for comments around the sequel, and et cetera, et cetera. So we know people were working ridiculously hard and out of office hours. And in some ways, just talking about the work of the artists here, it's not going to be appreciated by most people. Do you know, like all those hours they put in and most people, they don't give a shit. Most people run into a room, pixel hunt, go scissor, 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 scissors, rag, 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 cool, 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 gone, out, out the door and they're never to return again. Just some amazing people worked very long on this and you're in and out in 10 seconds and, and a lot of people don't even fucking look but it must register on some level it's really interesting there's a reason that you know this world this setting and stuff is talked about in a way that 
you know, there, there are a lot of post-apocalyptic games that aren't quite held up in the same way. And I always think of like those old stories about Stanley Kubrick and, you know, he, he wanted Jack Nicholson to hack the door down in The Shining and they did like, you know, 146 takes of him axing the door because he wanted the wood to splinter in a certain way. It's like, you know, some people are just bonkers. But <laughs> it, I'm glad we're doing this today to just highlight how crazy, how crazily detailed these rooms are because someone has to. And I think it does have a subconscious effect i think when you do play these games you are rooted in a way that you simply aren't in something like days gone or even horizon forbidden west or something it, it, that sense of history is there even if you don't stop and maybe take it in um, but i'm glad we are today because it's fucking mad how good it still looks now the level of detail they put into the world does mean that inconsistencies stand out and it was funny 10 years ago. And my God, is it funny now when you're sneaking about the place, trying to be super survivor boy <laughs> and kill a load of these one hit killed mushroom zombies. And your companion is <laughs> like, like they're in the middle of a mosh pit. Absolutely <laughs> stomping about the place. <laughs> like in the shootouts, it doesn't stand out as much. Because, you know, it's it's bombast and whatever uh, yeah. else. But it's in those sections that I spoke about that I loved with the clickers, where you do have to remain super quiet and all that. Uh, but then Ellie is just jogging right past a clicker. Uh, obviously, you know, the desired effect isn't me breaking my whole laughing. They're not, they're not going for that. So it is ultimately maybe not great. It's funny for the wrong reason. Oh, for sure. But you'd always rather that than Sheva Alomar getting into trouble every 10 seconds, right? You know, that's the side to come down. If you want to be silly video gamey, that's fine. As long as you've got a companion that's bulletproof and rock solid and works. (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to mention, it is 10 years ago. Shake your Tic Tacs, shake your six axis controller, baby. Yeah. I don't know this to be true, obviously, but it feels like there was a mandate on Naughty Dog and they were told when they were making it for the PlayStation 3, lads, there has to be a six axis thing in here. And they were like, we don't know what to do. And somebody said, what about the batteries in the the flashlight? You could like shake. And it's like, done, that'll do. I love it. I absolutely adore that so much because it's in part two as well. And it's such a lovely little, it's so small. And it's like, yeah, they never run out. And it is a lovely little use of that tech that's like, it's not full on bonkers gimmickry, like infamous second son, where they want you to hold the PlayStation controller upended as though it's a spray oh, paint yeah. can. Like that's like, do you know what I mean? But like, it is just, huh, you never really have to think about it until all of a sudden you're locked in a hotel basement, there's clickers about and it suddenly goes off and you shit your pants. And then you... <laughs> You quickly do it again. It's it runs just the right side of a, of a gimmick to me. And exhale, because that is our review of The Last of Us. I'm sure we could probably talk about more things, but we've covered most of the important parts. So, lads, let us kind of wind down a little bit with a game of Who Am I? Who Am I? 
every episode of the Stealth Boom Boom podcast sees me test the gaming knowledge of my colleagues with a simple game I like to call Who Am I? I give five clues to the identity of a video game character and you, Josh Wise, and you, Adam Carroll, must give me the correct answer. All you have to do is say stop and then give me said answer. Given the nature of this podcast, the video game character in question will be from a stealth slash stealthy video game and I will not listen to any complaints from either participant if they have a problem with the character I have chosen. You get the clues once and once only, so listen up and listen up good. Let us play Who Am I? Clue number one. My first appearance in a video game was in 2019. 2019, what the kids say. Clue number two. I have a to-do list. And regardless of how the people around me feel, I will be crossing things off that list. Ooh, this one's kind of funky. What is going on? Clue number three. Whether it's on the high street or by the pub, I will be causing havoc. Sneakily, obviously. (laughs) I wonder if that's a reference to a physics engine. Clue number four. I suppose when I say havoc... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I don't mean it in the traditional video game sense. I just mean I'm going to be a bit of a prick to my fellow villagers. Uh... Uh... Like I was... No. Fellow villagers. What? And clue number five, and I would say fingers on the buzzers, lads. Stop, 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 stop. Josh Wise. It's not the goose from Untitled Goose Game, is it? And this week's winner is Josh Wise. Yes! (laughs) Well done. Let's go through the clues. Clue number one, my first appearance in a video game was in 2019. Yes, in Untitled Goose Game. Clue number two, I have a to-do list. And regardless of how the people around me feel, I will be crossing things off that list. You do have a to-do list in the game. Mm -hmm. And the activities generally revolve around you having to be a shit to the other people (laughs) around you. Uh, Clue number three, whether it's on the high street or by the pub, I will be causing havoc sneakily, obviously. There are just two locations in the village, in the Mm. game. I suppose when I say havoc, I don't mean it in the traditional video game sense. I just mean it, uh, I'm going to be a bit of a prick to my fellow villagers. I mean, yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. Mm. And clue number five would have given the game away. Clue number five was, anyway, I'm not sure what else uh, I could say to you, really. I think I've told you everything about Hunk. Because <laughs> you're a goose in Untitled Goose Game. But when you threw in villagers, I then went, Tom Nook? <laughs> it was like... Stealth and recrossing? Congratulations, Josh Wise. So yeah, let us take a quick little break and then we will be back with our final verdict on The Last of Us. All right then, it's all come down to this. This is the part of Stealth Boom Boom where we give a a badge of honour or dishonour or middle, I guess, uh, to uh, The Last of Us. Uh, But before all that, let me tell you, give you a bit of a snapshot of what the critics were saying at the time. First review here, 
five out of five, Paul Sartori from The Guardian. Sartori said, The Last of Us is visually arresting, mechanically solid, maturely written, tense, unnerving and brutal. Check your ammo, grab your shiv, just try your best to stay alive. Uh, second review from Ollie Welsh at Eurogamer gave it 10 out of 10. And Welsh said, it starts out safe but ends brave. It is heart and grit and it hangs together beautifully. And it's a real video game too. An elegy for a dying wor- uh, world. The Last of Us is also a beacon of hope for its genre. Tom McShay of GameSpot gave it 8 out of 10 and said, quote, The Last of Us stretches on for hours, forcing you to endure the suffocating atmosphere and unrelenting despair that citizens of this world have become accustomed to. And that time spent navigating the desolate wasteland draws you deeper inside. The Last of Us is a singular adventure that looks the downfall of humanity in the eyes and doesn't blink. Matt Helgson of Game Informer gave it 9.5 out of 10 and said The Last of Us is a deeply felt, shockingly violent game that questions what we're willing to sacrifice and, more disturbingly, what we're willing to do to save the ones we love. The conclusion offers no easy answers. You won't forget it. And final review here from Patrick Klepik of Giant Bomb, who gave it 5 out of 5. Klepik said, The Last of Us is not simply Uncharted with zombies, but it couldn't exist without Naughty Dog having made Uncharted first either. It's a dark adventure, one rarely filled with laughs or joy. People live, people die. Sometimes it's fair, sometimes it's not. It's still a zombie game, but a sobering one. Take a deep breath. (laughs) So... Those are some of the opinions at the time, but let's none of those opinions matter. My God, the only opinions that matter is Adam's, Josh's and mine as we bestow, yes, badges of approval or disapproval on The Last of Us. So how this works is each of us will give The Last of Us a rating and that rating is either a pass, a play or an espionage explosion. One, two, three. So, a pass, we don't think you should play this game. A play, we think you should play this game. Or an espionage explosion, we really think you should play this game. As I say, one, two, three. All rationale for ratings is entirely up to whomever is bestowing the badge of approval or disapproval. And Adam, we've always started with you. So I think from this week going forward, we should mix it up a little bit. So we'll just change the order. We'll go down by one each week. So instead of going Adam, Josh, Colm, this week we're going to go Josh, me, Adam, and then next week me... Adam, Josh, so on and so forth. So, Josh, what is The Last of Us for you? A pass, a play, or an espionage explosion? It's an espionage explosion for me. I still think, it. yeah, it's just terrific. It's terrific in so many ways. It's not perfect. There's a bit of the old, you know, ludo-narrative silliness. Uh, A little bit, not too much. And that stuff never really bothers me either. Very, very good mechanics and stealth. Very, very good combat as well and it's just even now it's a terrific story that i think few other games have 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 reached if any amazing world building yeah it's terrific in just so many ways uh, it should it should be played uh, and i guess now they've got part 1 that's kind of proof of its endurance i guess you know sort of full on remake that very very faithful. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy this one for me. I think it's yeah, it's got to be a an EE. For me also easy. And I didn't think coming into this I genuinely had no idea. I was like this could be any of the three to be honest. I I don't know where I'm going to land on this. But pretty easy for me a play. I enjoyed the stealth a lot more than I remember in the first one. Again, I think the clickers are 
just fantastic in all those encounters. Yeah, I like the simplicity of certain aspects, like the uh, crafting system, but it isn't without its faults. And there are some, and I, you know, spoke about most of them. And like the story, it's okay. The story is okay. The characters are are better than the story and I'll give him credit like your your two leads are very good Troy Baker and um, Ashley Johnson mm. it's got negatives it's got positives and f- kind of for that reason it's it's ended up in the middle for me but yeah qu- quite an easy uh, play for me Adam Carroll what say you? This is absolutely the hardest one I think I've had to like give a verdict on a feel so far Um I think I think it's it's incredibly important. I think it does a lot of great stuff, but I think as it stands, I'm going to sit on a play, and that's a really strong play. It's an odd one. I don't know. It's just like I I just know this game so well. I I feel this time around going through the this TV show as well and all that jazz. I think Colin make a very valid point in saying like that. Its story is it's okay. But I do enjoy the characters and there's an amazing voice acting, incredible soundtrack. There's a lot to like. And it, it, it's, it's a game that everyone should play. And I think everyone has probably played at this stage. You know, <laughs> It's a play. Lovely stuff. Well, forget all of that. Forget everything you've ever said about The Last of Us. Because mm, we've just said all of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, because we need to turn our attention to what we're going to be discussing on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom. Because on the next episode, we're going to be looking at a game that Liana Hafer of IGN called, quote, the breakout hit for the genre. PJ O'Reilly of Nintendo Life said this game is, quote, an instantly accessible and super addictive casual gaming experience that serves up some hilarious whodunit hijinks in short bursts. And Liana Rupert of Game Informer said, quote, Despite its simplicity, I can't help but love the way this game l- makes me look at everyone as if they are super sus. And I should say, none of those reviews are from when the game came out. Because when this game came out, nobody cared. Nobody cared about it until about two years after its release date. I'm sure you know by now. But to make it official, on the next episode of Stealth Boom Boom, we're going to be reviewing, dissecting, discussing Among Us. There is an imposter among us. Which one of you is it, ye bastards? Um, very quickly, have have either of you played Among Us before? Nope. Nope. Ooh. No, I'm excited. I remember the hubbub. I am excited. Exciting. Exciting. Our first, I think, multiplayer game, like properly not optional. Yeah. And kind of the epitome of a stealth boom boom in that you know, it's stealthy if you're playing as the imposter, but maybe... Well, look, we'll talk about all that next week or, or two weeks' time. But yeah, now it is time to start winding down, start wrapping up this poppy. So, thank you very much, dear listener, for listening. Of course, you can subscribe to our lovely little podcast via all your podcasting apps, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, etc., etc., Uh, That way you will never miss an episode if you subscribe to us. I should say as well, actually, on your podcast service, rate us. If it's on Apple Podcasts or whatever, 
give us five stars give us a review all that does help thank you very much you can also follow us we are at Stealth Boom Boom on all your relevant social media uh, you can also follow all of us I am at column underscore Ahern Adam is at Adam Zokes and Josh is at Joshy Hawise but now lads now the time for my least favourite part of the show because now it's time to bid the listener adieu so say goodbye Adam Carroll goodbye say goodbye Josh Wise bye and say goodbye Colm Ahern Sloan Gaffo. Gaffo.